Located in sunny Southern California, friend of the show John Bucati visited and reported back it is nothing short of spectacular. And that's not even talking about their philosophical view on recovery. People at Oro treat addicts and alcoholics with compassion and connection rather than control. Their team has decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including SMI. They are out there helping addicts and alcoholics. Also, they have amenities you wouldn't believe. Sound bath meditation, yoga, equine therapy, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge, and so much more. If you're fucked and willing to go to sunny Southern California, check them out at ororecovery.com. All right. I want to tell you guys about an amazing podcast. It's called Recovery in the Middle Ages all about two middle-aged suburban dads and their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. Listen as they discuss current topics of interest to the recovery community, like 12-step, the newest in new medical research, and talk about their daily struggle to maintain their recovery and an anonymity, and an anonymity in the world of soccer moms and PTA meetings. If the neighbors only knew, find recovery in the Middle Ages wherever you get your podcasts or at middleagesrecovery.com. Also, if you guys want stickers, let me know. If you want dopey stickers, I will send you a dopey sticker. If you want to make your own stickers, I really suggest using custom stickers. Use the code DOPEY20. You save 
20% off. Their stickers are great, durable, waterproof, and super affordable and fast. Check them out at customstickers.com. If you want a dopey sticker, I will send you one for free. First one's free. All right, here's the show. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And my name is Dave, and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. Today is my older daughter, Nora's 14th birthday. So it is a, I don't know, it's an emotional day when your kid turns 14. I don't know, somehow it's much older than 13 in a way. Just like 50 is much older than 49. And Nora turned 14 today, and I'm going to turn 50. Fucking hell. It's funny, like, I was high for the first 14, I don't know, five and a half years of her life. I mean, and I can rationalize it. I was mostly smoking weed in that time. I was just really high for a couple of those first years. A mistake I often make is to rationalize those first five and a half years to Linda. That's never smart. If you were using when your kid was alive and then you got sober, uh, never <laughs> try to rationalize the using years to uh, the other parent of the child. It's never going to go well. But I have to say, being a parent is one of the greatest joys of my life. And being able to be a father to my daughter has my two daughters has been mostly incredible. And I love my daughter's birthday. I drew her a little card. We bought, you know, presents, obviously. I went and I bought 14 balloons. And, you know, I love her birthday. I love being able to be a good dad and, and have a good relationship with her. It's incredible. It is an incredible thing. I never would have imagined looking back that something like this was possible. But at the same time, before I had a kid, I never imagined having children. But it is a great thing to be sober for her birthday. So I just want to put that out there. I know it's a weird way to start the show, but that's how I'm going to start the show. And as always, I'm thrilled to make another episode of Dopey. It is my great joy to continue... Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit, to keep addicts company, to unite addicts and alcoholics in reflecting on the fucked up shit we did and how to, you know, laugh the survivor's laugh, be in the community, be together, and and share, you know, our experiences and maybe our strength and maybe our hope and maybe our failures and maybe our catastrophes. That's what we do on The Dopey Show. And I obviously started Dopey eight and a half years ago with my friend Chris. Chris overdosed and died five years ago now. And Chris always had, uh, he had a whole thing. I think it was the last show he was alive. He was like, <clears throat> kind of prophetically, he said, Dave, make sure every episode we say the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit, and make sure every episode ends with good so bad. And uh, I've tried to honor that request. And I think a lot about Chris, and I think a lot about 
the show. And I mean, I'm totally obsessed with making the show. It is my pleasure and joy and passion. And I remember when we were first making the show, we were trying to figure out what it was and was it good? And it was supposed to be just like the dumbest, craziest, funniest stories about using and addiction and recovery. And I remember I was driving around Long Island listening to some episodes and I was listening to some of the lost episodes too. And I remember that because I told stories on them and those episodes are gone, by the way. Someone just wrote me and said, Dave, when are you going to post the lost episodes? And I was like, they're gone. And he said, I should mention it to the audience that somebody out there probably downloaded those episodes years ago. I feel like if anybody did, they would have gotten in touch with me. But if anyone in the audience listened to episodes two, I mean, we have two and four are up. So the only actual lost dopey episodes are six, eight, 10, and 12. Six, eight, 10, and 12. So if you're an OG dopey fan, and let's just clarify for a second an original dopey fan listened from the very beginning. That's what an OG dopey fan is. They listen from the beginning. That's it. Um, and when I call somebody an OG dopey fan, it is just to give love and respect. And we don't want any divisions in our community based on status, silly status, like OG-ness or hardcore dope or whatever. We are all about unity, love, and togetherness. If we have beef, it needs to be with external sources, with things like That Sober Guy or Omar or other entities that we might or might not have had beef with for over the years. Modi, Vice, Kat Marnell had beef with us. You know, whoever, whatever. Anyway, love is the answer. Let your freak flag fly. That is the dopey code. Love is the answer and let your freak flag fly. And this week is dopey, hardcore dope, OG dope, lover of dopey, friend of the show, Lizanne. Oh, fuck. My fucking clapping thing isn't working. There we go. Hold on. Is celebrating 10 years this week. Congratulations, Lizanne. We love and appreciate you. Whatever status you want to give yourself, I happily support you. And I thank you for all of the support you've given us for so long. There's probably other people to honor. I don't have a hardcore list right now. We have so much to get to today. Lots of stuff is happening. But before we do, I just want to say that this episode of Dopey is brought to you by Mountainside. Mountainside was where Chris and I fortuitously met, where Dopey was born in the smoking section. Chris was smoking somebody else's parliament. I was smoking a Marlboro. He was wearing a white t-shirt. I was wearing a green hoodie. And Dopey was born. And we talked drugs, addiction, and dumb shit and treatment. And we also got really good treatment. Mountainside has a full continuum of care, which includes detox, residential, long-term residential, outpatient, and recovery coaching. Mountainside has an incredibly holistic wellness program, yoga, acupuncture, qigong, sweat lodge, all of it. Chris and I got so much out of Mountainside. You can too. Check them out at mountainside.com slash dopey. You can see a little dopey page they made or give them a call at 1-888-833-4922.
definitely check them out. Last week, I didn't talk about two deaths that I really wanted to talk about briefly. One was the loss of Carl Weathers, who, of course, played Apollo Creed in Rocky. We, we love you, Carl Weathers. And more importantly to me, he was played himself, Carl Weathers, in Arrested Development, and he was brilliant, and I'm sorry he's gone. So rest in peace, Carl Weathers. And more close to home, last week we lost a brilliant musician. I, I talked about Wayne Kramer last week. This, this week I want to talk about Aston Family Man Barrett. Aston Family Man Barrett was the bass player that uh, backed up Bob Marley and the Whalers forever. He wrote a bunch of the classic Whaler songs, and he is possibly the greatest bass player who ever played, one of the greatest songwriters. His brother was Carlton Barrett. They were the rhythm section in the Whalers. But I'm going to tell a quick story that I might or might not have told. This probably won't impress anybody, but I might as well tell the story. Back in the day, uh, in my first heroin run, living in Manhattan, my friend Justin, who wrote Good So Bad with me, worked at a studio in Brooklyn for a reggae organist named Glenn Adams. And Glenn Adams played with Lee Scratch Perry, and he played on the Bob Marley song Mr. Brown, which I'll play for a second. Hold on. And that's uh, Glenn Adams on the organ. And probably Family Man on the bass. That's so good. Anyway, yeah, check out uh, Mr. Brown. But back in the day, my friend Justin worked at Glenn Adams Studio, and actually Rocker T was on there. And, and of course, Rocker T is the classic New York City reggae artist who did this classic dopey song. I'll play that for a second. Dopey podcast. Dopey podcast. Well, no, it's the, it's the time for the dopey podcast. Anyway, that's Rocker T. We grew up watching him all the time, and Justin got him to record at Glenn Adams. And it was a magical time, except that I had become addicted to heroin. And I was going to less and less things, and I stayed home. And Glenn Adams was really plugged in with the reggae scene. And the Whalers were in New York to play a show. And Glenn was going to have Family Man play a part on one of his songs at his studio. Only in the airport, his bass got stolen. And Justin knew that I had a bass in my apartment. And he asked me to come out to Brooklyn to deliver the bass at my apartment, which was actually my friend Devin's bass. And Devin is, of course been on the show many times. He's the guy I post when the Knicks win. And I told Justin I wasn't going to go to Brooklyn because I was too strung out and I didn't want to go. And so he came to my apartment, picked up Devin's bass, which was a Fender Precision bass, brought it back to Family Man, who played Devin's bass on Glenn Adams' recording, which I never heard. And uh, and then he went off into his world or whatever. And, and I was always incredibly uh, impressed that my life had rubbed up against Family Man's even though I was too much of a junkie to actually go meet him or, you know, hear him play or whatever. And now he's gone, and he 
is a very, very important musician to me. So if you have time, listen. To, and also the Bob Marley movie came out this week, just after Family Man died. So rest in peace, Aston Family Man Barrett, one of the greatest people to ever play music, and thank you. It's a lot of music history and dopey lore built in. Now I got a voicemail that I would like to play. Here's a voicemail. But first, I need to say that this episode of Dopey is brought to you by BetterHelp. I love therapy. The greatest thing about therapy for me is how it's helped with my relationship. Therapy is an incredible place to work through challenges you face in all of your relationships, whether they're with your friends or your work people or your partner or whatever, or most importantly, your relationship with yourself. And therapy is incredible if you have relationship issues, if you have work issues, if you had trauma issues, but also if you don't. Also, if you just are a little unsure of the next step in your life or you're a little regretful of some things you've done. If you are thinking of starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DopeyPodcast today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash DopeyPodcast. All right, I got a voicemail I want to play. It is from Mallory in California in reference to emails and voicemails we got from Damien in Australia. Dave, in response to your questions about Damien's Datura psychedelic story, eating the flower juice, I've done it in Southern California and Florida. The flowers grow in people's backyards all over the place. And I just ate the flowers raw. I've done it a handful of times. I hallucinated that I was wearing clothes, but I was really fully naked. I walked outside. I also talked to people that weren't who weren't there. I did see cartoon characters, but that was like on day two or three when it was wearing off. I would smoke cigarettes that weren't really there. As it was wearing off, I would be smoking and then I would look in my hand and the cigarette wasn't there and I got admitted to the psych ward one time after taking it and while I was in my in the chair for intake I kept feeling people flicking the backs of my earlobes and jolting my chair up and down so there's like tactile hallucinations and yeah it also made me black out one time um, when I took too much and my, I woke my mom up in the middle of the night when I was a teenager and she said, I was just like walking around, knocking shit over, just saying that it's okay. Cause there's a warranty on everything and <laughs> just doing crazy shit. Oh, and I also had sex with this guy and the whole time we were having sex, I thought he was a, I hallucinated that he was a different guy, but then the next morning when it started wearing off, it was definitely not the guy that I thought his face changed. <laughs> Thank you, Mallory. I appreciate the Datura story. 
We talk a little, me, Moshe Kosher, this incredible podcaster, comedian, writer, actor, DJ, just amazing guy, is on the show today. And we talk a little bit about Datura, and we talk about a little how Bill Wilson's Belladonna is a little Datura-esque. Did you guys ever trip Datura? Send in a voicemail or an email. We would love to hear from you. And Mallory, congratulations. You get Dopey Socks. What an exciting... Hold on. Yay. I like uh, I like cheers for Dopey Socks. And I sent out a lot of shit. We have these beautiful hats. We have this fucking really nice socks if anybody wants to buy any. Oh, fuck. I just realized something. Are you a hardcore fan of the show? Do you love the show? Do you listen every week? Do you listen? Do you long for more? Do you go to Patreon? I'm going to say something that might be fucked up. I think you guys should should pay 8 bucks a month. $2 a week into Patreon. There will be bonus Patreon shit. I'm thinking of starting a listening party to the first 142 episodes of Dopey. I need more patrons. I need to quit my fucking job. I need to just do Dopey full-time. I work my ass off on this. Join Patreon at the $8 level if you get a ton out of Dopey and you can afford it. That would be fantastic. You go to www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. I got a bunch of notes. I'm going to read a couple notes here. All right. This one is just very... This one like made me feel... I don't know. It made me feel something. <laughs> Okay, first I got this. Celebrating 15 years this week. Met my husband in the fall of 20 for 2004, and we were both in active addiction. Spent the next four-ish years living by the motto, all gas, no brakes. Got on methadone together and have stayed clean together since. We do recovery. Listening to Dopey on my silly little mental health walks. Then I got this. Congratulations on the 15 years. I think that's awesome. It's nice to have a partner in recovery you in recovery with you. I got this weird cryptic note. My name is Stephen Riling. I was a police officer for 20 years, and during half that time, I was severely addicted to opiates. Let me explain. I was the head of the narcotics division of my police department when I was intentionally struck by a vehicle during an arrest. Due to the incident, I need back surgeries, which comes with loads of opioids that were prescribed. I kept taking the pills for year, years until I realized I needed to stop. I went to the police union and reported my addiction, so they sent me to rehab. The first day back to work from rehab, I was called into my lieutenant's office to let me know they are putting me back into the lead narcotics detective position. The rest is an entirely other story. It ends crazy. I was told to send you my story. I hope you find it interesting. I need to hear more of this story. I just do. It's like, who told him to send in the story? Is this dude listening to the show? Who? What is this story? I need more. Send in more, please. I'm ridiculously grateful to the people at Diamond Recovery Group who are supporting our show. So this episode of Dopey is also brought to you by the Diamond Recovery Group. They started last year. Their mission is to help as many friends as possible who are dealing with addiction. They have three incredible residential treatment centers in L.A., in Atlanta, and in Florida. And get this, they have a 24-7 hotline, which also gets texts. So if you're fucked and you want to send a message 
to the good people at Diamond Recovery Group. It's 855-625-8124. They have an incredible spot in Florida just for co-occurring mental health disorders. And they also are really good with young people. So check out diamondrecovery.com. Call them at 855-625-8124. And if you're in the South, Diamond Recovery Group is the fucking place to go. All right, I'm going to read another email. This one is from an old-time dope. Actually, and, and the brother of an old-time dope. It is Charles, and he writes, Davey, first of all, your show is fucking huge to me and my recovery. You and Justin sent my brother to TLR when he was literally on the streets in Denver when not on someone's couch. He is living with me and my family going to school to be a radiology MRI tech. Not to be annoying with cliches, but we should both be dead. My kids without a father, our great family destroyed with grief by our dumb shit. But we're not. We're actually kind of thriving, which is weird. My partner and I just bought our first house. Yesterday, I had five years off dope, coke, and meth. Nice. That's good. My, my clapping. There's my clapping. All right. Crazy shit. The rooms blessed me after leveling treatment against... After leaving treatment against medical advice for the last time, and between dopey and meetings, I built a nice foundation for fixing my life. And then I even got to help my best friend, too, my brother. Some straight-up Disney movie shit. Now to the point of this email trying to buy our first house in this horrible market, coupled with successfully graduating felony probation. I should have gone to prison, however, being sober for a year prior to sentencing and making connections with people in the rooms who mattered in my town's judicial system helped me avoid that. It led me to a fork in the road. The housing search, losing accepted offers to cashovers as the last second had me, at the last second had me floored. Um, quit meetings. Meetings became less enjoyable for me, and I was left at either drinking alcohol, getting antidepressants, or smoking herb. Now, being the old stoner deadhead that I am, I went with Bud. I had some low 2.5 milligram hard candies I got from my partner when I was in Colorado last. Anyways, I proceeded to begin taking multiple of them every single day and have now been smoking every day. My life is good. I think it'll help with my stress level, bring my stress levels down without a doubt. I needed the relief as I was really not doing well and my meetings quit being a benefit to me. However, I've done this weed only thing before and it didn't end well for me. I'm absolutely determined to not let myself use any hard drugs ever again. Also, I don't judge anyone who smokes in recovery and actually have encouraged people to smoke bud instead of use Suboxone or Methadone, if possible, in the past. But I have to say I don't feel well about the fact that since I started to use uh, the weed I looked and look forward to when I can smoke every single day, in this case of AA fucking up my high, or should I be listening to this voice and working on taking the corrective steps when I'm ready? I fucking loathe the thought of going back to meetings and saying I relapsed on Bud only. Just an outrageous statement, in my opinion. But I also am not going anymore at all because I don't feel like I'm being dishonest. My closest sober friends know, and they are generally split on the verdicts. I know I'm doing well, but I need to shake this guilty feeling regarding smoking if it's going to be a long-term solution for me personally. Fuck, that was a lot. Sorry. Thanks again. Love the show to fucking death. Stay strong, dopey motherfucking nation. Me not say toodles, Charles. Thanks, Charles. 
I appreciate the email. I say go to meetings. Don't tell anybody you're smoking weed if you really don't want to. And eventually it'll probably get to you, you know, and you'll want to tell somebody. I have a friend at my meeting who had eight years off of Coke and crack and drinking, but he was intermittently smoking bud. And he would talk about it sometimes and then he would not talk about it. And then and then he would quit and then he would wind up smoking again and he would talk about it. I think going to meetings, if you like meetings, is is always a good thing. And if you're not ready to talk about it at the meeting, you don't have to. You, I mean, do whatever you want. Just you. It sounds like to me from reading that email that you know what works for you. And I am worried with you that the bud becomes too much of a crutch. The best thing about meetings is, is having other people sharing your experience. That's it. Let your freak flag fly. <laughs> Love is the answer. Those are the mottos of the show. Also, you could check out the Dopey Nation Zoom. Also, we do a really, really incredible recovery meeting on Wednesday mornings for patrons. If, you, if you're not a member of Patreon, I suggest joining at the $2 a week level. I am unbelievably excited that we have Moshe Kosher on the show today. I'm actually going to Los Angeles next week, and we're going to do a second half of the Moshe Kosher interview. Supposedly, the comedian Annie Letterman I'm going to interview her next week. Some more folks. I don't know. Maybe Bobby Lee is coming on soon. Margaret Cho recently ambushed the comedian Bobby Lee, and she sent in this video. You're not going to see the video. She sent in this video accompanied by this audio. Dave. Dave. Um, don't be Dave. Bobby said he'll I'll do, do your, it. He'll do your podcast. Yeah. 2025. <laughs> that's, that's really far. <laughs> no, no, until 2025. No, do it sooner. All right, six months, six months. Do it sooner. Yay. 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 Love you. Love you. Yay. 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 Million thank yous to Margaret Cho, and that would be very exciting to get Bobby Lee. I mean, I'm, I, you know, I don't need to say how how much fun I have doing the show and how much I love it. I don't need to say that. Do I need to say it? All I need to say is that this episode of Dopey is also brought to you by the incredible people at Discover Recovery. Chris Paulson was a fucked up drug addict and alcoholic and he got sober and he decided he wanted to help other people get sober. So he created discover recovery. They have two locations for detox and residential treatment in Washington state. It is really the best treatment available in the Pacific Northwest, a region that is historically underserved considering how many drug addicts are in the Pacific Northwest. Their medical staff is on-site seven days a week. They have master's-level therapists, substance abuse disorder counselors, psychiatric services, and so much more. Luxury accommodations. They help young people. Chris Paulson is a good dude, and I, I love the Chris Paulson quote. I'm not great at selling. We operate with integrity. You personally know one of the co-founders. I do. We are trying to do right by those we serve and have a true proven track record. For more information, check out discoverrecovery.com. And if you don't believe it, check out the reviews. 
Thank you for sponsoring the show, Discover and Chris. And now, without further ado, the incredibly brilliant Moshe Kosher. Actually, before I do that, get his book. His book is fucking amazing. It's called Subculture Vulture. It's amazing. Amazing book. He also has another book called Kosher and the Rye. Incredible books. Incredible guy. Here's Moshe Kosher. Oh, yeah. And definitely stick around after Moshe Kosher. We're, we're launching our, our first ever new segment called Junkies Doing Good Stuff with the brilliant author and journalist Sam Quinones. So stick around for that. Here is Moshe Kosher. So, hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. Dumb shit. I heard about that. Let's get this fucking party started. I'm in bed with the great Moshe Kosher, humorist. My, I had them talking quiet because we're in bed. No, we can we can go no, big. I'm trying to be like... Uh, Bobby. Be sweet in bed. Yeah, Bobby. Uh, do you think she's funny? I'm not... Why would you ask me? Is that not a fair question? Well, it's just a gotcha question. No, but yet yeah, the answer is yes. I think she's funny. Well, I don't know. understand her. She's a phenom. What's, do you know her? I think it's Phenom. No, it's Phenom for sure. It's definitely Phenom. No, it's a city in uh, Cambodia. Phenom. Phenom Pan. Okay, so what's her deal? Um, I, I don't know her. I don't know her. Now it's very, it's feeling a little bit Bobby right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You're, we're negging each other. How much do you earn from the podcast? I do okay. Yeah? What specific amount? Last year, I made... I can't. I can't. Can't do it. I'm too Jewish to say. Yeah. I just can't. Well, that was Bobby. That's what she does. She calls people out on how rich they are. People hate her. Do they? I think so. I mean, I can tell you what it is. It's it's they like watching a rapper talk to like a basic white girl. Right, but then what happens when the basic white girl talks to Jessica Alba? Or has she done that? Yeah. I I don't know. I I think I'm doing a movie with Jessica Alba soon. Amazing. What is it? Is it the dolphins in Hawaii? Anything like that? Yeah, it's dolphins in Hawaii. How did you know? That's crazy. It's it's called Dolphins in Hawaii. It's incredible. And it's a movie about um, steelworkers in Iowa. Beautiful. Yeah, but for some reason it's called Dolphins in Hawaii. Listen. This is very mellow so far, this energy. I am very excited. My DJ DB, who was on the show, called me. I was leaving an AA meeting. He calls me. He says, you got to get this comedian... Moshe Kosher on the show. He wrote a book called Kosher in the Rye about how fucked up he was before he got sober. And I was like, great. So I, I immediately find him on Instagram and I message him and he says he'll do it. But he has a new book called Subculture Vulture, which is an incredible book. Oh, you like the book? I loved the book. I appreciate that. It is Moshe's life in between six different subcultures. The first being AA, which was just like a joy to behold. I'm Well, that one was written for you and I guess for your listeners too. A lot, and then the second one is rave culture. The third one is being the child of deaf adults. Yeah. And you didn't make any jokes about uh, like Def Jam or that shit is You know, deaf. it's funny you make that um, connection because uh, you want to hear an early joke from my early career? Please. I said, uh, my mom always loved my comedy. She's always loved my comedy, even though she can't hear it. She's always really supported my career. <laughs> yes. And uh, in fact, she was so supportive that in the early days, she would come to my early open mics and set up like a merch table of homemade preserves and jellies and, and spreads and things like that. And she would sell them to support me going on the road. And over time, those got more famous than me. They got more popular than me and they took on a life of their own. You, you've heard of Deaf Comedy Jam, right? Very, I love it. Thanks. Listen, Thanks, that God. was early years. It's great. It's great. 
that was a that was a first a first year joke. Listen, Deaf Comedy Jam, I think it's fantastic. It's your I just, jam. I also just think it's incredible that you're the child of two deaf parents. What do you think's incredible about it? It's 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 I get you, you the way you write about it is it's very much like being of another country or another lineage. Well, yeah, I kind of describe it as like, well, it's weird to have deaf parents because you are simultaneously a member of the community. Um, there's no, I would say almost no deaf person that I know would say that children of deaf adults aren't fully vested citizens of the community of the deaf community. But you're also you're the oppression class. You're a, a member of the oppressor. And so I say it's like being born white in Wakanda. Like you're a citizen, you've got a passport, but you can't wear the panther suit. Right, and and you and you ask, are you a coda or are you a, a, a hearing person? Well, that's a question that I've been asked before. Someone's asked me, do you consider, coda is child of deaf adults. And it's a, it's more than just an identifier. It's like a, it's a, it's a widget of identity. If you, you know, you, like it's, it's a deep core identity for a lot of codas. Well, it's like, like children of adult adult alcoholics, right? Isn't that a thing? I think it's like more than that, though. No, that is coda. That's another. That's a, that's our rivals. Children of dumb alcoholics. That's the other coda. Children of d- dominant alco- dominant alcoholics. Dominant alcoholics. No coda. The ch- children of deaf adults. They can sit. They have conventions. They they have. I've I've been with a group of them where they start talking in deaf voice together. It's really intense. Um, it's not something that I would do, but they do it when they get together because children of deaf adults feel a lot of them feel really. Like they were born in a chasm between worlds. Like they're not, they're not ever fully deaf, obviously, because they can hear, and they're not ever fully hearing because they were reared in the deaf community. They spoke sign before they talked. They identify with deafness and deaf culture more than they do with hearing culture. So they're in this kind of nether world. And yes, somebody once asked me, he, it was like, "Do you consider yourself a coda or a hearing person?" And I was like, "I guess <laughs> both, by virtue of the fact that I." He, I'm a hearing person, and he was not pleased. He wanted me to say Coda. Right, because it is, I mean, you're also the quintessential outsider. You grew up white in a black world in Oakland. Your father was a Hasidic Jew. You were separated from that scene. Anyway, I want to keep going down the subcultures because I'm enjoying it. it. So then there was uh, Death World, Burning Man. Burning Man. That, I mean, you- The place where you wish you were deaf. I wish I was there. I never got to go. Oh, right. And I now would, you can't. Now I can't. You can't. I can't. It's too late for me. No, you could go. And then hot Jews. Hot Jews? No, Hasidic, but you were really Jews. It's not Jews. really just the Jews. The whole Jews, all of them. Yeah, and I felt- You felt seen? Well, I recently interviewed Modest Yahoo for is, Dopey. Is he in recovery? No. Okay. He got wasted during, during the, the interview. interview. It is that was, against the rules of Dopey or no? It should be. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it was wild. But at the end of it, I realized I'm not really Jewish anymore. Because? Because he told me that. <laughs> Wait, why? What? what <laughs> he, is, he just You work at me, Katz's Deli. Does, I mean, mostly Dominicans work there. Okay, but still, I just feel like it's so Jewish. You you definitely you, qualify. The, the last passage you wrote about being Jewish was so beautiful that it, it reintegrated me into being Jewish again. You're telling me. Yes. The Matis Yahu yes. alienated you from the community so deeply you thought I'm not Jewish and then you read my book and, and I now came you're back. back? Yes. Dude. It's amazing. Eat, eat it. Eat it, Matis Yahu. Eat it, Matis. Yeah. He's a good guy. He's got problems. We all we all have problems. Are you familiar with him at all? Uh, do I know him or am I familiar with his work? Either way. Yeah, I mean, I know. I, I My cousin uh, plays music with him from time to time. What does your cousin do? 
He's like a, a a kind of was in a Israeli rock band called Moshav, and they're wow. they're pretty big in the like they're like ah what's there there's got to be an equivalent in the Christian world like they're like the cool religious band like they're religious but they're cool like Creed Creed but Creed <laughs> went mainstream famous like they never quite got to Creed I think there's a degree below Creed okay. That's how they describe themselves. Is a, a Jewish degree below creed. Right. They're like the the Jew creed, but not as famous or cool. That's what that's on their website. And the sixth one is comedy, which I always thought I could get involved with, but never made it. But you're adjacent. I'm adjacent. Yeah. And yeah. I did and I did two I did stand up twice. And? One time was really, really good and one time was really, really bad. Was the second time was the bad one? Yes. Yeah, and that's when we stopped that. We were done with that. Yeah. But I did a I did a show the other night and it was funny. We did an event with Hank Azaria and some comedians and it was funny. For the podcast. Yeah. Cool. And maybe we'll do one and you can come. Okay. Let's see how the rest of this interview goes. Exactly. I'm having an experience though. Like I meet people who listen to the show and they're like it's so weird to sit with you because I've listened to you for so long. And I just listened to you for 11 hours. Well, Oh, you listen to the audiobook? Yeah. Oh, well, that's podcasting, isn't it? Is that people feel like they're your friend and they, and that they know you and they're right. They do know you because you've been broadcasting your innermost thoughts to them for hundreds and hundreds of hours. And yet you don't know them at all. And so it's this very asymmetrical kind of uh, intimacy. Right. And that's what memoir is. The truth is even more than podcasting because on podcasting, you're you're broadcasting some front of the kind of person that you I mean you are doing that to some degree in memoir too but at least in theory you're like I I was in both of my books trying to kind of crack myself open and show you my like soft white underbelly and uh so people know you on this really people come up to me for my first book they go how's your mom right I don't know you and neither does my mom but they know her well the great the great detail of Moshe's mother is that there is a magic wand hanging near her bed under oh. right above a t- I imagine a tub of astroglide. You should say a Hitachi magic wand so it seems like what she is which is a masturbation aficionado not yes. a Harry Potter aficionado. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. An Hitachi magic wand yeah. with a tub of uh my world, my kingdom for if it was just a regular magic wand. Right. Then would, that'd be a whole different kind of thing. It would be a different subculture. I would rather have been w- raised with a sorceress than with just a horny, masturbating, deaf mother. By the way, the Hitachi Magic Wand, the loudest vibrator available on the market, and my mother has no relationship to the concept of sound, so I overheard everything. <laughs> so good. And what I didn't get to hear, what I'm so excited to, to hear about, is when you started using, what you were like when you were known as Fila. Uh, Fila. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, like, what, what kind of a... because. Moshe's an interesting drug addict, and he's the kind of drug addict that lots of us resent, the drug addict that gets sober before he becomes an adult. Well, I will tell your listeners not to resent it because okay. it presents, I mean, I get the resentment and why. It's not fair. It's just a well, it's reality. Not even, beyond so it stupid. being fair, it's it's not, it has a set of problems, which I'm sure will will come up in this conversation, that do not plague not that they don't plague people that get clean older, but they can't not plague people that get sober as young as I did. I got sober when I was 15. I was out of my third rehab by the time I turned 15, uh, almost 16 years old. And that's when I 
when I finally like asked for help and and stopped was 15, almost 16. I mean, it all seemed cool for a while. I mean, it wasn't cool, but it it you know when I was 21 and had six years sober, I used to love bragging about that. Right. I used to feel so like proud of it. Then as you get older, you get into your 30s, mid 30s, it starts to curdle a little bit and it starts to feel more and more absurd and more and more like, what am I talking about? And then people will ask you like, 15? Like, what What were you doing? And they want you to say heroin. Right. But it's not the truth. What's the story? Well, my whole story? Yeah. Well, what you said, I was the quintessential outsider. I mean, I felt well, as will be a familiar refrain, I felt like painfully outside in every sort of aspect of my life. I wasn't deaf enough for the deaf community. I wasn't black enough for the black community. I wasn't. Well, you Jewish. weren't black at all. Well, I tried. <laughs> I, I, I gave it a go. They called you Fila. They called me Fila. It's amazing. Um, I and you grew up in Oaktown. I grew up in Oakland, Piedmont Avenue. Piedmont Avenue, the really the rough, the roughest part of Oakland. Yes, that is. I love the Larry moment too. Well, that's you know it's you. Oh, you listen to the audio. Yeah. Book. Well, that was cool. The Larry moment was cool because there's a part in the book where my friend Larry, we're jumping in time here. I'm now sober, and uh, I was about thank you for explaining six this months. Well, I, we were back. I was just about. I wasn't. I hadn't even gotten high yet. In the we're story. about to get back to you getting high. I don't. Wanna, I don't want to kill it. No, you no, don't kill it. It's good. Let's go back. Let's go back. We don't need to jump ahead. You're no, right. this is funny, Larry. Talk about Larry. Well, I really did. I was like an N-word user. I, I couldn't imagine it until it I sat with you. It doesn't fit into my current <laughs> persona. But I was like, you know, when, but I don't mean I was an N-word user like in the bad I know. way. I mean in the bad, in the pretty damn bad way, which is the you know the cool white boy way. Yeah. And uh, I, I used it. Uh, as an ally and um, Larry was a friend he was uh, about a year more, longer sober than me he'd gotten sober in I think 19 and he was black and one day you know I thought I had a pass to use the n-word and one day he threw me up against a wall at the 2910 telegraph the the where the young people's meeting in Oakland was that was central office and he revoked my pass he threw me up against the wall and he's like stop saying the n-word but he didn't say it like that and he just basically was like, if you keep talking like that, I'm going to beat the shit out of you. And he and I was like, no, nah, you don't understand. It's just that's some just just some North Oakland shit. It's just how I talk. He's like, you don't don't say that either. You don't live in North Oakland. You live in northern Oakland. You live on Piedmont <laughs> Avenue. It's a good name. Stop saying that shit. And um, when it was coming time to do the audio book, I realized like, you know, I could censor the text by putting a, an asterisk in the word. But I couldn't read the text. Um, it wouldn't make any sense. So I was like, okay, I should get a black actor. I should get um, Samuel L. Jackson. Well, he, he, uh, he was busy. I mean, he was busy. He was very sober. Though. Um, I thought maybe Too Short because Too Short read my first book and liked that. Maybe Too Short, but that's a weird call. Hey, Too Short, you might, you might have read my first book. Anyway, I'd like you to come in for a one-hour session where you just say the N-word twice. But then I thought, what about actual Larry, Larry yeah. real Larry? And so I got back in touch with Larry after, oh, I don't know, it had been 20 years, and asked him if he would do it, and he very graciously agreed to do it. So his voice, actual Larry, is the Larry in the audiobook. Yeah, I love that. After 20 years, did you have Larry's number? No, but I used the, uh, the power of, uh, of Facebook, uh, which I love because I support what they do politically. Sure. Uh, I was Who able doesn't? to con. Oh, nobody does. I mean, if you, you're, you're a real snowflake if you don't, if you don't love what they do. But anyway, I did. I was able to find Larry and get in touch with him, and, and it was very nice of him to do that. Now, take me back to before you're old and 15 in AA and sober, and and tell me about like you you described yourself as a wannabe gangster. To be fair to me, 
everybody was. I mean, when you're a, a white boy in Oakland public schools at that time, you had like a couple of choices. Like white people were like separated into like very broad categories. One was just like the nerds, which just really meant white. It was just like every white kid. And then there were like the few lucky white kids who actually grew up in a black neighborhood who were like fully accepted in the community. And then there were the kids like that I gravitated towards eventually, which were the kids that only had white friends, but that all of the white friends they had pretended that they were black friends. And so those were the people that I gravitated towards. But it wasn't because of that. It was because like you were saying, like, I felt this painful self-awareness, this outsiderness. My mom started sending me to therapy. I started displaying behavioral issues real young. And uh, my mom sent me to therapy. Like how old? Like, well, I got sent to therapy when I was four. That was when my therapeutic journey began. Uh, my mom sent me to this therapist named Ruben who wore turtlenecks and used to, we used to do a uh, uh, combat play, which is he would give me uh, like nerf swords and I would beat the shit out of him and try to hit him in the dick. And then he would go take notes on my form and then report back to my mom. Um, I started getting diagnosed with learning disabilities and psychological disorders very, very young. And like um, what kind of stuff were they saddling you with? Well, eventually, I don't know the timeline that well. I know that eventually I got a hold of a psychological diagnosis book. And I had read some of this stuff when I was young. So I knew this information was being uh, given to me and these labels were being foisted upon me even at that age. But by the time, you know, I graduated from that last rehab, the, the, the battery list of diagnoses was um, learning disabled. Uh, visual spatial learning disability, uh, attention deficit disorder, conduct disorder, uh, um, oppositional defiant disorder, clinical depression, and quote, on my way to becoming a first class sociopath is what they said. And, and did what did they tell you about that time? Like, what do you remember? Well, there's a misinformation, you know, pipeline that happens when you start to get shunted into that universe, you know. Um, you, foisted and shunted. Both, both great, foisted. And, great, well, I'm great. a memoirist, just very, in case you very, forgot. <laughs> very good. Foisted and shunted. Well, shunted is the right word because it felt like, you know, there's a lot of talk in black and brown communities about the school to prison pipeline, right? So I, maybe as a result of the privilege of my, uh, of my of my social status of my family, or maybe as a result of the fact that my mother considered therapy like a second religion or, or a primary religion. You know, in the first book, there's a passage where, and this is more or less true. It's not a big exaggeration to say, like, growing up, you know, my mother believed in therapy so much that we would use it as a second parent. Like, you know, you would go to dad and go, dad, Mom said, I have to go to bed. Well, we would use the therapist like that. Right. Like my mother would say, you know, the sky, I would say the sky is blue. And my mother would say, the sky's not blue. The sky's green. And I go, no, it's fucking, it's blue, mom. And look, and she'd look at the sky and go, nope, that's green. And then we go to therapy and I'd be like, my mom says the sky's blue. And then the therapist would go, well, now be, you know, the sky's blue. And she'd go, oh, you're right. It's blue. So that was the relationship that therapy had in our early life was just like, it was the, the truth manufacturer, it was the authority, and it had the answers. But I very quickly started to get sucked into what I call the special education to prison pipeline. I was not, I all of the consequences were down that ladder. They were not typical, you know, juvenile hall into youth authority, into probation, into jail, into prison, into parole. 
that's the more sort of traditional school to prison pipeline. Mine was special ed therapy into special ed class, into special ed school, into mental hospital, into um, into rehab, into therapy, into group therapy, family therapy. I at one point was in therapy eight eight times a week. Eight times. That's more times than they than they make days. That was rehab five days a week after school. Uh, family therapy one day a week, individual therapy one day a week, and group therapy one day a week. So that was the the kind of backdrop. The coolest part about it is that it worked. Well, I guess it worked. Ultimately, my, you got sober at 15. That is true. It is true. But at the time, it really didn't feel like it was helping. It felt like it was, it was pathologizing me, and it was making me feel more and more like I was broken and that there was no hope. And so by the time I found, I was already partway down that that ladder by the time i found this kid you know i went i was shoplifting cigarettes one day how old 12 this was seventh grade maybe the, the summer of sixth into seventh grade and this kid saw me smoking cigarettes and he said um that's pretty cool I go, how'd you, he's like how'd you get them and i go oh, i stole them, man and i used to steal like not in like i didn't know about stealing i was like a solo criminal so i would like put a trench coat on like Pink Panther style. Mm -hmm. I thought that was like, that was really... They wouldn't notice it. No way they notice a 12-year-old in a London fog <laughs> trench coat yeah. walking through the cigarette the, to the, the cigarettes. The cigarette aisle. Well, they had cigarettes up front. That's how long ago it was. Yeah, they were up yeah. front. I'm with you. And I would slip it down my... I was not that good at shoplifting. I would later get better. Do anyway. Do 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 seriously, like looking back and forth. Crusoe. But nobody noticed. And so, because I was so young, that I had this pack of cigarettes and I was smoking cigarettes and this kid came up to me and he goes, how'd you get those cigarettes, man? And he was probably 13. And I go, I fucking stole them. I'm a career criminal. <laughs> and he's like, um, he's like, well, that's pretty cool. You stole smokes, man. Can I buy half of them off you? And he paid me for half the cigarettes. I barely smoked. You know, I was like, yeah, you can uh, love smoking. It's cool. You can definitely have half of my pack. Like every smoker is always right. want to do. Yeah. And I gave him 10 cigarettes, and then thinking better of it, I handed him an extra. Uh, I handed him 11. Yeah. And that 11th cigarette was my ticket to ride into the cool kids. And um, that was who I found, the kids at the, that hung at the back of the school. And he told me, you should come hang out with us at the back of the school. You know, We do some cool shit back there. And uh, I went back there, and we got high for the first time. Actually, the first time I smoked pot... I was like Bill Clinton style. I couldn't, I didn't know what, I, I did not inhale. I believed Bill Clinton when he said that because I was like, I tried it and I didn't, you know, I pretended I was like, yeah, weed. I like, you know, I just didn't know. I thought this is what, this is what weed is. It's like, this is nothing. But then the second time I was like, this is everything. Uh, this is the thing that made all of those feelings of like separation and difference and I'm, am i like meant am i developmentally disabled and what's wrong with me and i'm in therapy and i'm not deaf and i'm not black and i'm not jewish enough all of that shit just like disappeared it like just vanished and it was like it isn't even that i felt like i am good it's like good doesn't matter anymore nothing ma nothing matters nothing matters it's the best it is the best it was it was basically crazy stoner shenanigans my my using yeah well yes and also no like i've had to ask that question well first of all i have a defensiveness when it comes to that question don't be defensive well i just it's innate we're two jewish drug addicts in a bed together <laughs> yeah but you shot heroin that's cool that's not that now crazy. that's cool listen I, nothing cooler man if i had gotten sober i mean i don't know maybe i'd be more like you if i'd gotten sober when i was 15 yeah, you seem like a great success it, i'm doing okay 
It just took me a long time. You know, it was a, it was a secure, circuitous route to get to where I'm at. But uh, it's funny, just a weird side note. I work for Katz's and on the way, I'm in charge of like weird fucking... Pastrami. No, I'm in charge of... The, the, the name that I got for my job is Strategic Partnerships. I've developed it. Uh-huh. I waited tables in there for 11 years. Um, I, I worked like a busboy, whatever. On the way here, I had to do a call with the the marijuana company called Cookies. Uh-huh. You heard of it? No. It's like some legal weed company and they want to do a partnership with Katz's. Sure, get stoned eat Katz's. Yeah, yeah, basically. And I had a call, like that call on the way here and I was like that's fucking weird and funny. You know, and I, and then like and everybody that works at Katz's is getting stoned before they work. Anyway, and every and half the people that eat there are stoned. Uh-huh. And it's just like it's weird that my life has taken me to this weird sober place having a call with a weed company that wants to fucking have a partnership with Katz's. But don't feel judged. I don't feel judged. I, I judge myself because this is the weird niggling doubt that I said mm. starts to raise itself when you get sober so young. You, you, you get to become an adult. I mean, I'm 44 now. And I look back on that time and, I, oh, and I, the question is always raised like, what, what was that? When I got sober, there was no part of me that was in any doubt that what I was experiencing was drug addiction. Uh, like, I could not stop. Uh, I, 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 I knew that I needed to stop. I was starting to see the consequences. So by the time I got sober, uh, I had been in and out of... I had been arrested more times than I could For count. what? Well, so it started with stoner shenanigans, and, and then it moved into teenage sort of sort of semi-daily acid dropping and drinking and some pills and some this and that but mostly it was just drinking and getting high and behavioral stuff wild like you know teenage behavioral stuff that i was already so far down this like special ed like like you're a, you're a problem for i'm a problem child and so i i dropped i flunked out of eighth I, yeah i flunked out of eighth grade um, I dropped out of eighth grade. How does that work? Well, you just stop going. I mean, I have a, a, a report card from, I think it was eighth grade or seventh grade, and I had a 0.67 GPA. Wow. I had straight Fs, and I had like one, I think, D in, in something. Probably but, English, because you're a great writer. <laughs> thank you. Um, I, uh, so then I, I didn't make it through eighth grade, and then I got into this. They sent me to this school uh, called... Um, Seneca Center for the Severely Emotionally Disturbed Youngster. Wow. And uh, it's called an SED school, Severely Emotionally Disturbed School. It's a fucking nightmare. I mean, they're, 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 they're a, they are a true nightmare. It was a basically a uh, an educational mental hospital, and there was a padded cell in the back of the room. And if you spoke out of turn even for one second, they would stand you up against the wall for 10 minutes, and you'd have to put your nose onto the wall. Um, and if you rejected that, then they would send you to the padded cell. Um, and I thought, okay, no, I'm not, I'm not staying here. I got my shit together. I, um, at that year and I, 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 I filled out this application to this school called Maybeck, which was like a, it was a good school, but it was an alternative school. It was for like weirdos, weird thinkers. And, but it was not a, a continuation school at all. It was like a hippie school. And I wrote them this impassioned like letter going, listen, I know that I, uh, I, fl- I didn't make it out of eighth grade, but I've got this educational promise and do, 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 like my whole thing was that my brother had the same set of circumstances as me and he got into a full ride. We were poor too. We raised on welfare, state um, SSI because my mom's deaf. Deaf um, mother, handsome brother. Deaf mother, handsome brother. 
And David, my brother, he got into a, a full ride to like this school called CPS, which is like this college prep school. And I just kept waiting for like CPS to call because I just felt like that's so funny that Child Protective <laughs> Services is also college prep is, school. Isn't that it, weird? It is odd. Actually, that reminds me once my. I'm just waiting for CPS this, to call. You're an emotionally disturbed drug addict. I want CPS son, to you call. want CPS no, to call. No, by the way, it, as an example of how much my mother worshipped therapy, speaking of CPS, she used to hit us. Uh, and she hit us with a belt. And I wouldn't say it was cool, but it was um, also, I wouldn't say it quite went all the way over the line into full-on physical abuse. Well, how badly did she beat you with a belt? She would spank us with a belt. Often? But it was it was her uh, weapon to, weapon of choice. Weapon du jour. But anyway, the therapist, she told the therapist once, oh, yeah, well, I did hit him with the belt. And the therapist goes, you've got to call CPS. So my mother called CPS on herself. Right. That's how much she believed in therapy. And I was going, don't do that. Like, I don't want you to do that. Right. I'm not interested. I don't feel traumatized by this. Don't do that. They're going to take us away. But she did it. She called the, She called the state. How often would your mom beat you with the belt, though? I mean, that's pretty severe. My dad used to threaten me with the belt. And when I hear the word belt, I remember he would make a loud sound with his belt. Listen, I I, um, I don't want to make excuses for it because I would never do it to my kid. It would never That would never, ever be something that I would do. I can't really imagine it. But I was a fucking nightmare. And she was a single mother. And I used to beat her, too. I mean, Tell, we used to have... Can you please go into the nightmare? Oh, like you how should, emotionally we, disturbed were you? Why well, that's so hard for me to answer because I I can never figure out if I was emotionally disturbed because they were telling me I was, right. or if I was if it was they were identifying something that was real. But there was a physical violence in my house that was perpetrated by me to my mother. I went to court once for biting her uh, and breaking that, the skin. I don't know. I don't remember a taste of blood. I was on the toilet. <laughs> And she, I was on the toilet shitting as you do. Yes. And she had found drugs or something like that in one of my in my room. And she started screaming, and I was like, "Fuck off!" And she like ran in and tackled me on the toilet with like you know doo doo butt still intact. Wrestled Never me off the toilet while, while in the process. No, that's wrong. Yeah, come up to me afterward. Yes. And so we're wrestling around on the floor of the bathroom, and I'm like biting her to get her off of me, and then she called the police. And then I got like into this like juvenile diversion program, which is which was like a some kind of weird court system for juvenile first offenders. And then they sentenced me to community service for biting her. And I was very ang anxiety addled by that because I knew that the fellows would be on the yard going like, what do you do to get in? And one guy would be like, Grand Theft Auto. Yeah. This, yeah. And what about you, white boy? Oh, I bit my mama. Better watch <laughs> out for I bite you, too. So that's. That, that that there was darkness. I got sent. I was I was sent to a mental hospital um, against my will, and that was pretty awful. And terrifying. The, the sure. SED schools were pretty awful. Oh, Maybach. That's what I was going to tell you about. I got in, and I think that was actually maybe after the mental hospital and after the severely emotionally disturbed school. I got into Maybach, and I was like, "This is it. This is my like ticket. I can get out." You know, I just buckle down, try really hard. And I'll get out. I will make it out of this like sort of hedonic treadmill that I'm on. And I got kicked out of rehab for behavioral issues. I got kicked out of every rehab I ever was in and always for behavioral issues. Do you remember any of the greatest hits? Of why? Yeah. Like what did you do in the rehab? I I remember the last one I got into a physical fight with this girl we used to call Pantera Neck. And she, because she had like the, remember the shaved neck yeah, of yeah, the heavy yeah. metal 80s yeah. and 90s? Yes, I do. And Pantera Neck attacked me. 
and in the elevator i don't remember exactly why i think she also i think i believe she gave me a hand job in family group and that was fantastic one of, that was one of my greatest what do you mean you believe i believe it was her no okay. no it that definitely happened somebody did someone definitely did. it, it might have been my counselor but it might have been pantera neck yeah. no i remember viscerally how cool that was yeah, i mean it was not to completion but the fact that it happened at all was it was pretty dang cool um but she attacked me in the elevator and i we got into a, like a wrestling match and she ended up scratching all the way down my face so i had like a long cut like i was bleeding and they go, you're out of here. I go, I'm out of here. I'm bleeding. I like there's physical evidence that I was attacked. Anyway, that that was one when I got kicked out of. But every my thing was that I like hated adults, like big time, hated fucking hated adults. And I used to try to get them, and I was good at it. I was smart, and I was uh you know verbally agile, and so I could drive the the counselors at the rehab crazy and i would make them snap i would push them and push them and push them and then they would snap and i would be like i would kind Here of we go i would grin like it's I've happened won. i've won because my whole life was just this series of adults telling me that there was something wrong with me my mother oakland public schools oakland police department my rehab counselors my family therapist my group therapist the, the fucking beat cop in my neighborhood like everybody was like there's something wrong with you there's something wrong with you there's something wrong with you and so i fucking hated and distrusted adults with a with a with a a passion of uh, uh, so much passion that when I finally all this stuff added up, I was give. Uh, oh, I don't want to lose the Maybach thread. I'm in Maybach and I go. I got a way I out. I like here. how organized you are with the threads. <laughs> well, these are stories I've thought a lot about. It's good. I got kicked out of that first rehab. I was in a rehab called Newbridge, and it was an after-school rehab. It was five days a week. Outpatient kind of. Thing. An outpatient, um, and I got kicked out. And I go, and that, being in that rehab made it so I wasn't smoking weed. I was still drinking because that would flush out of your, uh, you, you could drink and then take a piss test and you'd be okay. I smoked weed once in while I was at, at Newbridge and I had I drank a bottle of vinegar, a full or quart bottle of vinegar. I remember, because uh, we had heard that that would help you pass your test. And I remember being in the bathroom with this copy mat and I drank I had a Wendy's cup and I poured a full Wendy's cup and I downed the whole bottle and then I filled it again. I downed the the whole cup and I walked outside and I puked immediately and then I puked for the entire day and I was so miserable. I thought I was going to die and I passed the test Amazing. Uh, and it wasn't worth it. I I would have rather just taken my lumps for the relapse than what I experienced. But the, so the second time I smoked pot, um, maybe that's why I got kicked out. Because the second time I smoked pot, I thought, fuck it. I'm going to do like Golden Seal or whatever. And it just didn't work. No, and that never shit, works. It never works. Never it just works. doesn't work. And I, and I, so I got kicked out and I go, I, I had only smoked pot twice in the like, I don't know, six months I was in that rehab. And I was like, there's, if I start smoking, I will not, I will get kicked out of the school. I knew that. I will not be able to do the work. I will not be able to, I just didn't have it in me. But they would all go to the Grove, this place in UC Berkeley campus, at lunch, and they would all get high because it was a hippie school. And I just couldn't answer the bell. Like, I mean, I got kicked out in three months. Three months after I, uh, this was my dream to like, go to that school. Yes. That was going to save your life. Not just that; it was like my dream school. It was going to set the trajectory of my life. You weren't going to be a weirdo, fucked up guy because yeah. it was a school of weirdo, fucked it, up guys. Exactly. You were going to be home finally, and they all got high too. Right. They weren't stri- like straight laced squares. They all got high too. But I got kicked out in three months of that school. I had zero ability to apply my design. I want 
And I, as I used to say in meetings, I wanted to be in Maybeck more than I wanted to get high. But on some other level, there was no contest. It wasn't even close to it. I was just, that was it. And I got kicked out of that school. And then the, this is, now we're in the really pathetic part. I kept going to the school. Wow. I kept taking the bus to the school for, to meet everybody at lunch and to get high with them. Cause it, and I'd been thrown out. I wasn't a student there anymore. And I remember I was walking into the Grove one day and I overheard these people talking about me, students. And they're like, yeah, it's fucking pathetic. Like, he just keeps coming here. He doesn't even go to school here anymore. That's mean. And I heard Did your that, mom know you were kicked out or were you trying to She say, knew. No, okay. no, no. She okay. knew. I mean, she knew everything. Uh, I And so that was sort of towards the end, you know, all these consequences that happened. And I had this like big realization, which, you know, a lot of people have, which is, okay, I'm starting to realize that the problems in my life are not um, are not everybody else. They're me. They're the drinking. They're the getting high. And I know what I need to do to stop. Um, I need to stop getting high. And I will be able to get out of this cycle. And then, then the really scary part happened, which was, as something that I think every drug addict knows, I just kept getting high. I mean, I had this like, big realization i knew the problem i knew the solution and i had no power to apply the solution to the problem um and i the story that i tell in the first book is i this is a true story i went so I, after that i when i had that realization i went to my drug dealer's house and i paid him for yesterday's bag and i bought today's bag i was like well, always like sort of 24 hours in debt and i bought i bought, bought the final uh, the final um 20 sack or 10 sack from him and uh and I go, this is it. I'm done. I'm out. I'm out of the game. I'm going to be getting sober now. And he's like, okay. And I went, and I got, oh, and I, this is, it was. And you're very, 14 buying weed though, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. this was really pathetic. I would, this is how I would do every day at his house. I would go to his house. I would buy weed that I stole. It was always money I stole from my mom, always. Or CDs of my stepfather that I sold or my mom's clothes or the or books. I would take books from the shelf and sell them. And uh, to I mean, get... it sounds a lot like heroin addiction. It is, I guess, but it's, yeah. I mean, listen, now I'm getting defensive again. I drank a lot. I did acid, like, probably I'm not even joking. I mean, I like, when I judging. was a heroin I'm addict, I would this steal is... books and you're sell them. I would steal money from my You're parents. not judging me. I'm right. judging okay. me because okay. I always think, like, well, what am I even talking about? But this is the way it was. This was the cycle. And this is how pathetic it was. I would go to his house and I would buy a bag from him. And I would say, you want to um, throw in half on a joint right now? Like you throw in $5 worth and I'll throw in $5 worth? They go, no, I'm good. And I go, oh, okay. Well, we could just smoke this. Cause, and then I would just smoke the bag that I just bought from it. Because I like, I was, I wanted lonely. some. I was lonely. Yeah, of course. And he would every day, he would go, I go, you want to do half and half? He go, nope. I go, okay, all? And he goes, yep. <laughs> <laughs> and um, That's sweet and sad. Yeah, it was sweet and sad. And so I, I went and I paid him for yesterday. I got high with him, with my with pot that I just bought. And then the next day when I went to his house to buy another bag, he goes, dude, what the fuck are you doing here? He goes, you said yesterday you were quitting. <laughs> here you are again today. He goes, you know, you've really got a problem. And I am here to tell your listeners that if your drug dealer ever does an intervention on you, it is time to get help. I feel like half the listeners have had that experience. <laughs> it's a sad more. experience. Well, it's like if if you have a drug problem, chances are and your chances are you're close with your dealer, and he knows, and he knows, <laughs> he knows. And, and, and dealers aren't necessarily bad people. No, that's Sometimes true. Sometimes they're going to be actually concerned about you. One hundred percent. I've had that happen. And he was, and 
so then that was my cycle it was like every day for months uh, i would just go like okay today i gotta stop and then i wake up in the morning this is how i used to describe it in aa meetings and uh, it was like i would go to bed going i have to stop and the minute i woke up and had the desire to use it wasn't that i had a wrestling match with my conscience it wasn't as you would think if you're a normal person angel pops up on one shoulder devil on the other angel says don't get high we said we weren't and devil's like come on let's go fuck some shit up and then the angel's like come on brother we can do better and then devil's like come on it's so fun to get high and then you go back and forth and then eventually devil wins it wasn't that at all angel was gone devil was gone the minute i thought i should get high i go yep i'm gonna get high i would be high and then i would go what the fuck how did i get here again right Right. No, I, 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 I never questioned using when I used, even though I knew I had, I had a horrible problem. As I used to say, I would get very hazy thinking uh, when staring into a bottle of gin. And so that was the cycle. I would go get hot. I would steal money or I would steal a, a fifth of gin or I would uh, tap a bum's shoulder and get a 40 and I would get drunk and I would get high and I would go, how did this happen again, again and again and again? And then finally, one day where my first book ends, Cashier in the Right ends the day that I, I remember very viscerally. I was at a BART station in Oakland with all my friends. We were all hanging around and laughing and having a good time. And I'd been struggling like this for a while. And I said to that guy that bought the 11th cigarette off of me, um, they were all going up College Avenue to go to this bar called Barclays that for some weird reason would allow underage kids to buy drinks there. They would like do a, they had a pull up bar that you could put right. if you were uh, under four feet, you could get up to the bar. And they were like, we're going to Barclays, man, want to come? And I said, I don't think I do. I said, I think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna go. And they all, all of them walked one way up the street and I walked the other way. I turned left and I walked alone into my new life. Uh, and that's where the book ends. Uh, is that that decision to walk alone? Well, the most incredible thing to me, and and I've been doing this show for a while, it's how different people's stories are, but they get to the same place. Right. And it doesn't matter. Like I got, I mean, I I had that moment, I guess, when I was forty one, and you had that moment when you were fourteen. But it's the same moment. Right. And it's like, it's a miracle you got there. And and I and I think it's also just like. How bad was the drinking before we even get into AA? Because I love how you write about AA. And none of it was. You weren't like fucking puking blood and no disaster, no, no, fucking I, no, leaving Los Angeles, no, whatever. No, I wasn't. I was getting high and or and or drinking every day, but I was not uh, having liver problems or jaundice or you know I was fucking fifteen, almost sixteen years old. You know, I mean, I don't know anymore if I was like a hardcore user. You know, I worked in middle schools for years uh, when after I got sober, and um, I used to look at those kids and go, "Was I like that?" Right. And I would go, "No, I, I, you know, I wasn't. I was." And I also stayed sober for long enough for people to come into the program who I go, who I would go, "Okay, you're just like a dumb kid. Like, there's nothing. No part of me thinks you're an alcoholic." But then I also stayed sober long enough to watch those dumb kids relapse and die yeah and so the whole mess of what is an alcoholic started to twist on me much later but at the time i when i walked alone so that's where the first book uh ends the second book begins on that day december 25th 1994 when i went into aa 
for the first time for a reason. Not because my rehab had sent me there, not because I was on a field trip, uh, but because I needed help. And I walked into the meeting, the Monday night young people's meeting in Oakland uh, uh, at 8 p.m. at 2910 Telegraph. I walked into the young people's meeting and I looked around and I thought, oh, fuck, it's all adults. Everyone in the young people's meeting. Youngest person is probably 20. 20, 25. And they were gross. They were like old and gross. And I was the youngest by at least five years at every meeting I stepped into for a long time. Yeah, for for at least five years. And I looked around and go, oh, no, this will never work. They're all adults. And they're just going to do what adults do, which is tell me what to do. Tell me what I need to do. And, you know, well, I was going to say I started to listen, but I didn't start to listen. The first thing I did was raise my hand and ask for help um, at this Monday Night Young People's meeting. And I said, I don't know what to do. I can't keep living like this, but I can't stop living like this. I don't know if this is going to work. I don't think it will work, but I need help. And I, and please, somebody help me. And then I got up and I walked out of the room, and uh, which is like a classic addict's cry for help. It's right. like, I need help. but if I'm you, leaving now. Uh, yeah, I'll be leaving. I'll be in the, <laughs> in the hallway if anybody can offer that so help. Someone can come after me now, please. But like, I didn't know that, that... You needed the love, though. You, it's like you needed to be loved. You needed, you needed to be pursued out of that right, room. Right, right. I was you playing hard to get. A little bit. Yeah. Well, luckily, the whole foundation of 12-step groups is that somebody had somebody reach out to them you know, starting from Bill and Bob in 1935, like just that random act of like, hello, I'm here, I can help. Somebody, I, I didn't know it, but I, somebody was definitely going to follow me outside. And somebody did follow me outside. This guy named Pigeon, who I'm still in touch with. Really? Who's now a divinity school professor, but at the time was just like another sort of fucked up person. Trying to, he's 28 years old or whatever. And he walked outside and he put his arms around me and he said, it's going to be okay, which is not high level. Uh, self like help you know but that's exactly what you needed to hear that, i needed a fucking hug i guess i didn't love the hug at first the way you describe the history of aa in this book is so fantastic oh thank you it is anybody out because there's a shit ton of devotees of uh of aa and i'm one of them and i'm not like a big history person yeah but i love the way you describe bill wilson's uh the belladonna treatment well, so that's important. The book, the second, the first book is a traditional uh, memoir. Memoir. The second book is one part memoir, one part history, and all parts comedy. It's it's funny, but it, each of the subcultures that I go into, I do a kind of ramshackle history of that world. It's and, great. And thank you. And including AA, we start at the very beginning. We start before the beginning, actually. Before the beginning of AA, we start, uh, we discuss the, uh, I discuss the Washingtonians and the Belladonna treatment that was... Uh, that immediately preceded AA, which was the town's hospital here in New York, which is a crazy fucking story. It was an inpatient rehab, uh, one of the few inpatient rehabs that existed because prior to AA, the advent of AA, you know, alcoholics and addicts were just thought of as like total hopeless lost causes. And, and you couldn't even really get help. You could, if you were rich, you could like pay a doctor to come to your house. But if you, there was one uh, hospital in New York called the town's hospital and it was started by this guy, Charles B. Towns, who was just a guy. He wasn't a medical professional. He just was like a rich guy. It was like, I, I, I am Towns. Call it Towns Hospital. <laughs> and he heard, he was told by a mysterious stranger. This is true. A mysterious stranger told him that the way to cure alcoholics and addicts of their cravings <laughs> was through this thing called the Belladonna treatment, which was a concoction of equal parts deadly nightshade and... 
insane route. Well, the funny thing is, I I get voicemails and emails from fans and yeah. stuff, and I just got this voicemail from this insane Australian fan who talks about Detura, Detura, which is like a nightshade flower, and it sounds like it's very similar to Belladonna. Detura was a drug that my friends. I never did it, but my Me friends neither. would take would do it because it grew copiously in Oakland. And my experience watching people uh, with Datura was they had one of two outcomes: the worst, absolute, like toxic psychedelic trip of their life, yeah. or they went to the emergency room. Either way, it it's, like either one way of the, it's a big loss. <laughs> it was not a drug to do. It's like if they just got high, it was the worst high they've ever had. But usually, they went to the emergency room. And what was the way you described the uh, the fecal result of the belladonna? In the well, they would literally wait for people to uh, have diarrhea. And once you had diarrhea, they were like, yep, the treatment's working. It's, it's begun. It has begun. And then they would discharge you after you discharged yeah. yourself. And they would, and they, Towns Hospital reported a 98%, I think 98%, I'd have to look in the book, um, success rate because they, they considered it a success if you never came there again. But they didn't consider the idea that people came in and drank this poison. We're like, I'm never fucking going there again. I love that they heard about it from a mysterious stranger. A mysterious stranger. And that it's a success if they don't show up again. <laughs> so that was win. their self-reported success rate. So anyway, there's a history of all that stuff in the book. And, and you know, it eventually led to, you know, as the story goes, you know, the Oxford group began and then Abby Thatcher came to Bill Wilson and then Bill Wilson came to Bob. And then from that weird chance meeting, you know, uh, of those two like strange old men, you know, it traveled across the country to meet me in 1994 to meet Pigeon when he got sober in 1993 so that he could have that same little magic and follow me outside and put his arms around me and say it's going to be okay, which allowed me enough relief to come back into the meeting and listen, and I was, lo and behold, the adults in the room were not telling me what to do, they were telling me what they did, and that elixir was enough to get me sober. I also love the way you describe Bill Wilson, just the prime, rawest piece of 12-step, which is, it's that story, like that we've read in the big book a billion times where he's at the, he's on the road, and he's in the hotel, and he sees the party right. and he, he finds the phone and you tell it in a way. I've read that chapter a billion times. I've yeah. heard it read a billion times. I felt like I was like seeing the behind the scenes when you <laughs> when I heard you read it and it felt, and but the, the most important thing is that Bill decided, Bill was taught, I guess, by Ebby that if he could help somebody with alcoholism, he would be cured. Right. And you describe it in such a beautifully heartfelt way. Well, that is part of the great mysterious magic of of AA and the 12 steps is this idea that the inversion of tr of of commonsensical principles, which is you don't try to help someone else, you try to help yourself and in so doing you might accidentally help them too. Right. <clears throat> these these inversions are were the kind of ethereal magic of the 12 steps these like it's it's actually not a doctor but a uh, but a, a sufferer that is the person that can reach the the other sufferers all of these inversions are like extremely powerful and they but they also eventually came to make the 12 steps and 12 step organizations become very uh, calcified uh, in in their approach to being open to other to new information because we stuck 
we got stuck in 1935. You know, I used to take people through the big book, and I was as big of a big book thumper as any human being could possibly Sounded be. Sounded like it. I really was. And I used to talk about the doctor's opinion in the book and go, William D. Silkworth, the most, the, the most <laughs> renowned... The most renowned alcoholism doctor in the world. First of all, in doing my research, he was not that renowned. People, <laughs> what did you describe him as, though? The stoner caterpillar. Well, his name sounds a bit like a stoned caterpillar <laughs> yeah. in the 1970s animated film. Great. Yeah, Great. But I would always cite him like the most renowned. First of all, not that renowned. Uh, people really were very skeptical of his ideas <laughs> at the time. Yeah. I didn't know that. Uh -huh. And also, like, what if you had cancer? And I was like, oh, you want, can you want cancer treatment? My doctor. Dr. Dr. Ebenezer, uh, you know, Smith. He was the most renowned cancer doctor in 1935. You're like, bitch, it's 2024. What's going on now? <laughs> right, exactly. So so it's it's both magical and fraught, I think. The, the longer I stayed sober, the longer I, it started to feel that way. Well, it, it was interesting, the ending. I was, I was, I was like almost like waiting for the ground to come up at me that you weren't sober anymore. Uh -huh. And I was like, fuck, what are we going to do? <laughs> this thing is going to end. He's not sober. But in the end, it was also interesting that the relationship with the Lord's prayer, because I had a, a similar kind of thing, which is like, I got sober in Manhattan and they don't they say don't do the, it they don't do it in Manhattan. Right. You, it's very easy in these cosmopolitan urban settings to, for, to forget that in much of the country there's a different strain a, a different no but check it out i i live in suffolk county yeah where they do it yeah on the on the regular and i remember when i got sober feeling way too jewish to say the lord's prayer yes yeah, and and then when i got there though i was like i was waiting for a lot of jesus to be in the lord's prayer yeah and jesus doesn't show up Right. They don't say in Jesus' name or something. Right. They, and there's no Jesus. Right. And I was like, and I and I scanned the Lord's prayer, and I and I and I also it's like a nice prayer. It's okay. It's, I like to be for, forgive trespasses, sure. your trespasses yeah. get forgiven, whatever. And uh, and then I had decided that uh, that's hardcore AA. So when I would chair in our meeting, the chair has to determine what prayer. And, and, and you would be an Our Father guy. I would never say our father. I would say the Lord's Prayer to sound very AA. The, right. In the spot that I got sober, it was the the most progressive, which is the we version of the Serenity Prayer. Oh, yes. That's yes. super progressive Manhattan yes. AA. Yes, God grant us. Right. I was so fucking, and, and I'm a little embarrassed of this, I would be, we, we our meeting is on the beach in, in Suffolk County, yeah. and I would, I would end the meeting, and I, there was a couple times I took my hat off and and one of my friends at the meeting is a Jewish guy. He's like, "You fucking idiot! Jews pray with their hat on. You fucking <laughs> idiot!" <laughs> but in the end, you fucking you're like, "I'm done." You you found you were too almost orthodox in your AAism. Well, okay, this is what happened. I became after I got sober, and this is the the quick version. I became like the the king of AA in my community and, and and specifically the king of young people's AA. I, I got sober and I stayed sober long enough to no longer be the youngest person and I started to become the longest sober, the, so the oldest in sobriety. And I saw my duty as uh, to be right in the middle of that organization, uh, young people's AA specifically, in order to keep AA 
uh, properly AA. Properly AA for those young people that that were my people, you know that that, and and I was a I was a good speaker. And I started to be get flown around on the circuit speaker mm. thing, and um and I was good because I was traditionalist in my message, but in my uh, language I was anything but. You were and funny. I was funny, no. and I looked weird, but I had this like traditionalist strain, which at the time I don't know what it's like anymore, but at the time like. You know, that was how you could get like garner attention in, in your message in AA. If you were like, you know, harsh, you know, yeah, I would go like, I remember some of my lines were like, they say, take what you want and leave the rest. But you never know that the thing you might leave might have been the thing that would have saved your life. You know, things like this, this stuff that feels very rhetorically powerful. Like but then, young minister business. Young minister. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and, you know, and I, I did this whole thing about the steps, you know, and, and the analogy is in the book, you know, uh, not coming to AA and not working the steps is like your problem isn't uh, alcohol, it's money and you need money and you see an infomercial one night and you go, oh, wow, that's uh, uh, that person on the infomercial says that he made a bunch of money sale, selling real estate ads in newspapers around the country. I could do that. And so they say, come to the meeting on Tuesday night. We have a meeting and you can talk about making money selling real estate ads in newspapers around the country. So you go to the meeting and now it's a different speaker. Now it's a black lady and you go, okay, it worked for the guy on the infomercial and it worked for the black lady. She's rich. He's rich. I could be rich too. I just got to do this. So I know what to do. I'll go to the meeting next week. Show up to the meeting next week. Now it's a gay man in a wheelchair. You go, oh my God, it worked for the black lady. It worked for the guy on the infomercial. It works for the the gay guy in the wheelchair. This could work for anybody. It could probably work for me. A year goes by. And you've gone to the meeting every week. And you every week, you sit in the meeting, and now you're getting pissed off. Now you're getting more and more resentful. You're going, well, why doesn't it fucking work for me? It worked for all these people, but it didn't work for me for shit. I'm poorer than when I started because of all the bus fare I've been spending going to these fucking meetings in this stupid hall. And then finally you decide, I quit. This won't work for me. And I, I would say, you see the problem there? You didn't do anything. All you did was go to meetings. You all you, you didn't take out one newspaper ad. You didn't call one newspaper. You didn't you didn't do the work that is necessary. And I would say, and I would say, no, oh, that's crazy. Nobody would ever do that. But people do that kind of shit in AA all the time. Not working the steps in AA. It's called a twelve step organization. That's we call it that because of the the, the steps. Yes. So this was the I was f- fire and brimstone, but cool. I was like cool techno listener at the same time you're becoming a raver. Right. How did those things jibe? And I know that in the beginning of your raver world, right? Because you, you, I guess you had probably gotten a couple years sober when you start penetrating the world of dance music, EDM, fucking rave culture. Well, this was a secondary journey that I was on, which was that, you know, after I got sober and I got some days underneath me and some months underneath me, you know, um, which was a miracle, you know, how did it happen? How do you get from day one to day 30? That's the great miracle. It's not how you get from 30 days to a year. It's how do you get from one to 30. But after about eight months, I looked up from this sort of shattered life that I had, and it was like not so shattered anymore. And I go, okay, I've got the rest of my life in front of me. Like, I really thought my life was over. Like, I really thought like, okay, well, I will survive, but I won't have fun anymore. 15. I mean, what a naive thought. But that was, it was because my whole universe, the only two activities I did were drink and get high. Right. And then I took those out. And, and then I thought, well, there'll be nothing to do. And that kind of logic presupposes that you only do two things. So when I got rid of those two things and then looked up out of the fog, I go, oh, there's all of the other things to do. And the first thing that I decided on was uh, to go to a rave. I don't know why. I, don't, I wasn't a raver. I didn't have a connection to electronic dance music. I just like bought a ticket, went by myself to this party. And when I got in there, I will tell you that 
some of the things that I got out of raves were as medicinal and as healing as uh, the 12 steps were. And maybe not as, but very, very close because I walked into that first party and this like really hard, like wannabe gangster dude. I like had a escape bottle of cologne that I stuffed into a sock to make into like a makeshift blackjack just in case I had to hit somebody. Yeah. You know, I mean, this was like my mind when I walked in, when I walked out, I was like, oh, I'm like a I'm I'm a raver. I went and burned all the Fila gear. I went to Ross and bought like a you know a wardrobe of Jinko jeans and gl- glitter and barrettes and pacifiers. And I was like, this is who I am now. Now the thing is, like, I I had such a fucked up, harsh childhood that beyond like the sex and the dr- like, I mean, I wasn't on drugs, but everybody was on drugs and the cool kids and the dancing and all that stuff was super fun. And any young person would have liked that. Any kid would have enjoyed the scene, uh, the rave scene, which was like super cool and underground at the time and just felt so like I had discovered a hidden secret and that I was in among, you know, my people in this other way. It was this river of love. AA I'm and s- the rave scene were both rivers of love and you needed di- that. In such different ways. You know, at the first party, actually, at that first party, when I when I walked into the, the main room and I heard the music, I, I put the bag down with the escape bottle in it i never saw it again i started fucking pirouetting i was like i never danced i was like because i was like you know i was like a wannabe and when you're a white wannabe like you you really are have a lot of anxiety about dancing i still am a must be a white wannabe i'm (laughs) such a fucking horrible dancer but it's like you would never want to move because then everybody would be like oh you really are white like i can see it in the rhythm yeah i think this is something i'm still struggling with. well it's a thing but i so i used to do this dance called i called it the butt clench which is i would just stand on a wall and i would clench my butt to the beat i walked in you know so nobody would see but if they looked at the back of my khakis they'd be like oh there's some movement there i walked into that warehouse i'm fucking i went from scarf to Barishnikov, dude. I'm like pirouetting, and then this gay couple comes up to me and they grab me by the waist, they lift me into the air, they go, they're like, You dance beautifully. And I'm like, Oh, what the fuck? What the fuck are these dudes doing? Hugging on me and shit. I, I'm a, they don't know who I am. I'm gonna let them know who I am. And they drop me to the ground. I grab both of them, shoved them towards me, kissed them both on the cheek, and go, You're beautiful too. And I pirouetted out into the crowd. Like I had like a a a monumental Buddha-like spiritual awakening there. In the final analysis, what I realized, you're exactly right. You see it. This river of love, it wasn't just a river of love that I needed, but also raves. Did you go? No. I mean, I, I did ecstasy for the first time at a rave. Well, they're marked by this infantilized, childlike yeah. like style. People have puppets. I had this like gorilla puppet I used to bring to raves. People wear barrettes. They have pacifiers. I used to have a pacifier. Very embarrassing. Only reason people have pacifiers is because you grind your teeth when you take ecstasy. But I did it because I thought it looked cool because I was clean and sober. <laughs> I just was like, this is a cool accessory. All these infantilized versions. I mean, these are all not children. But for me, I realized as I got older that it was this like secondary childhood, this like hyperbaric chamber of childhood that I got to like have this sort of cartoon version of what child a childlike experience would have been. And right. that was healing for me. Like, and I'm sure that was what attracted a lot of those people too. Maybe they were broken toys they, too. They Absolutely, needed it. sure. I, I, yeah, no doubt. But they were all on drugs. Yeah, good. God bless them. And I was not. Right. And I, but I would. I do think, in some ways, I was as high as anybody there. You were. I mean, you you fa- you were home. You like found That's yourself right. through it. But I felt home also in 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 the AA meetings and and that home became so uh, important to me that I started to defend it in this very sort of strident way and i became i would say rigid and i was a fundamentalist 
And I was a fundamentalist to such a degree that like I was telling other people what to do. And I would like when I found out somebody was dating a newcomer, I would like scare up a posse and go confront the guy. And like I would like chastise people if they didn't pay at a like on your honor parking structure. I'd be like, you're not going to pay screaming it in front of people just like. It was all my responsibility to make sure that nobody in- stepped out of line. Yes, yeah, so you were the die. cops. I was the cop. I was the sheriff. And if I didn't, people would die. I knew that, and I and and I also knew everything, so I knew what they needed to do to not die. So in 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 one of the the twelve step chapters, I I, I earmarked a couple of pages where I was actually reading. Yeah. Um, and and this just made me laugh while I was reading it, so I wanted to read. And I guess you, you, you did a little bit of uh, Sex and Love Anonymous, too. And you wrote, a guy showed up close to the end of the meeting, sat down right next to me, raised his hand to speak. They called on him, and he said, I'm Richard. I'm a sex addict, and I've been sober for 30 minutes. 30 minutes. He kept talking, but I stopped listening. I panicked, knowing what was coming next. The meeting was about to end, and like every 12-step group, It would end the same way. We would stand, hold hands, and say the serenity prayer. I was sweating, looking at those 30-minute sober hands. The fingers were still moist from fingering a sex worker in the car in the parking lot of the meeting. I knew that momentarily those cum-drenched hands would be outstretched to me to join in a communal prayer of support. I love my fellow man, but not that much. The second the meeting ended, I beelined for the door, tipping my cap to the brave and horny men and women in that meeting. Nothing but respect to them, but that was one hand I could not hold. I'd forgotten my Lysol. (laughs) (laughs) That's a funny passage. The Lysol, you have to understand, was the reason I went to, um, to the Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous meeting in the first place, which is that the night before, a woman had come over who I didn't want to sleep with, but I had a policy. I just was incapable of saying no. By the way, a lot of this book is about me just like getting high on things, getting high on raves, getting high on Burning Man, getting high on performing, and definitely getting high on sex. And she she wanted to come over, and I didn't know how to say no to a person that wanted to come over. My rule was if you were willing, I was down. Yeah. And so we slept together, but then she started like furiously itching her butt right afterwards, and I was like looking at her butt going, "Uh uh-oh, that's something. And when she left, I ran like in a panic to uh, my kitchen and opened up the cabinet and grabbed a bottle of Lysol and started spraying my legs with Lysol. And then I was like, I think maybe I need a sex and love addicts meeting. Right. Exactly. I just love cum drenched hands. Sure. We all love cum drenched (laughs) hands. Who doesn't love cum drenched hands? I can't imagine who. And then in that same era, though, you're selling ecstasy. As a, as a nightclub empresario. Well, this is a little bit of a complicated blip in my recovery story, just to, for the people following the timeline. The real time that I got, like, when I got evangelical about AA was not the first run. It, I, I, I went to AA and then I went to raves and then I was faced with a choice uh, eventually, like, which is the world that I want? And I chose raves. No, hands down. I was 17, almost 18 years old. I'm like... I'm doing raves like this is my world. These people are my age. They're hot. They're young. They're fun. And I threw raves and DJed at them for years. And then eventually through a very weird set of circumstances, I started selling ecstasy clean and sober. But I stopped going to meetings for about about six months or a year in there when I was just full rave guy and ecstasy dealer guy. And the whole thing fell apart. And I hit this kind of psychological rock bottom still sober. And a guy from AA kind of rescued when all the the pieces of my rave kingdom kind of shattered. Um, and that story is all in the book of how that happened. 
I like went up to some, I went back to a meeting and I went up to somebody and I was like, I need help. I'm, I'm a drug dealer. And he started showing up to my house every day and like banging on the door and throwing me in his truck and forcing me to go to like a noon meeting. And so that's better street cred than being a pothead for, you know, <laughs> exactly. I'm selling ecstasy now. So I had this line in my talk, which was, you know, I took AA. I know for sure I'm an alcoholic because I took AA out of my life and the alcoholism returned without the alcohol. And then it saved my life again by working the 12 steps. That was my proof text was that without a relapse, I had taken AA out of my life and I had hit a second bottom. And then that's when I became this like fundamentalist guy was after I re-entered AA in this bigger and deeper way. And then sort of years went by and I, I approached this guy to sponsor me. I was probably 15 years sober and I found that my judgment, my harshness was keeping me from people uh, and people didn't trust me and they didn't, you know, they, 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 my friend was dating someone with like nine months sober and I found out and I go, why didn't you tell me you have a girlfriend? He goes, well, I didn't, I was scared of what you'd think. And that felt wrong, like that my friend couldn't even tell me he was in love with someone because I had become this character of judgment. And so I went to this like more, I don't know, non-traditional sponsor. And I go, I need help figuring out how to stop judging people. And he said to me, well, what would it be like if you never commented on another person's behavior ever? And the thought like sent a chill down my it spine. It scared me when I read it. Really? Yeah, I'm not good at that. No, me neither. I was like you know, I, but that's my job. I mean, I'm the guy that keeps people in this community sober. Like I'm the one that keeps the kids sober without me the, you know, everything will be anarchy. It'll be anarchy. And then, you know, he said that classic thing, you know, well, you just ask yourself, does this need to be said? Does it need to be said by me? Does it need to be said now? And I started embarking on this experiment of keeping my mouth shut. And it worked like this. At first I would see an infraction and I would be about to say it and i would like look at my sponsor and he would like shake his head no and i would bite my tongue and i go okay it's on you when that kid dies that's fucking blood on your hands motherfucker like it's not my problem it's your problem and then a few months would go by and then i would see the infraction i wouldn't bite my tongue i would just uh, it would be easy for me to control myself but i would think well that's wrong but it's not my business not my not my job and then a few more months would go by and not only did i find it easy to not comment i had come to stop seeing it as wrong it had morphed inside of me. I would say it, my sponsor, who I'm still in touch with, says I went from saying, isn't that awful to isn't that interesting? And that was like a huge freedom. But with that freedom came right. this like thread where the fundamentalism, like the, a, a tile of the mosaic that created my fundamentalist belief system in AA, one of them fell out. And when you're a fundamentalist, if I Everything was more like is you, connected. I don't know if you're a fundamentalist, but if, if you're, if you're, if you're a loose garment type, if you take what you want and leave the rest, then when one thing starts stops feeling meaningful, it doesn't infect the rest of the things. But that's what started happening for me is it started to be this thread that I was pulling where more and more I was like, I don't know what I believe anymore. And that began a long process of me wrestling with my place in 12-step groups. Well, there's so much interesting stuff there. I am a sort of, I want to be both. I want to be a... Hardcore, whatever you, however you described it, a militant. But I also know that if I'm not a loose garment guy, I'm fucked. Right. And then part of that is getting sober older. By the way, that's my belief. 
Right. That when you're young, you don't have an analytical brain and to be able to say like this thing is meaningful to me, this isn't. You, I was such a kid, I just go, I would take the most cartoonish version of what it meant to be a sober guy. And so it was so extreme and so unanalyzed that by the time I started analyzing it, I was too hardcore. And it felt a lot like being a church elder who one day like wakes up and goes, I don't know if I believe in the Bible anymore. And then you have to go, well, what does that mean for me? I'm married with children. Every fr friend I have is, a, is also a church elder. If I leave this world, I, I will decimate my world. And I had to like wrestle with that. Well, it's interesting that you still talk to your sponsor because I know you don't, you don't, you haven't gone to meetings in a million years. Yes, but I still live my life according to the principles that I learned in AA. See, that's, that was something that I was really curious about. Yeah. Because you get sober at 15. When did you stop going to meetings? Probably six years, seven years ago. Okay, so you're 35 or something. Yeah, something like that. And and you are one of those people that it's like, well, maybe I could drink safely. Maybe I could smoke a joint. But you didn't do it. Did you not want to give up all those years? Were you scared that it was true? Like, why didn't you do the experiment? Um, because I am neither convinced. I am no longer convinced in either direction. I used to be fully convinced in one. Right. Now I don't know what what is true about me i got sober so young i don't know what alcoholism means when you have such a, a an array of psychological disorders that are happening simultaneously right and i go you know is alcoholism the one permanent static part of my identity from when i was 15 because nothing else about me is the same everything else has changed is alcoholism a permanent thing except your keen fashion sense well yeah that's right i still dress well <laughs> yeah so, but I have compulsivity. I've got sexual compulsivity. Right. I, you know, I just took two nicotine pods out. I, I have all that fucking swirling mind fuck that being sober for a long time gives you. And so that's the, the, the negative part. And I've got a great life. And I've got a kid. And I've got, you know, uh, I've got all of this reason to keep things as they are. And the risk assessment is really precarious. And so I stay sober these days. And it's been 29 years because my life is pretty full. I don't lack for anything. I don't, uh, I, I thankfully do not feel like a dry drunk. I don't feel like not going to meetings anymore. By the way, I had a lot of anxiety about writing this whole chapter because I don't want to be the poisonous seed in someone's ear that makes them go, maybe I don't me need, too. I don't need meetings. Right. But if you showed up, like it would, you should come back once in a while. I would, my friend that asked would me be to so give, exciting. My friend asked me to give him a cake recently. And I wasn't in town, but I would have gone. I'm not against it. I love it. It's, it's my memories of AA are nothing but fond. And my belief and my knowledge is that it saved. I know that it saved my life. No matter what it was, it was really occurring, whether it was alcoholism or juvenile delinquency or psychological problems that have, have since gotten better. There's no question in my mind that without getting sober and being in AA, I would be in prison, dead. Or, you know, the thing they don't, they go jails, institutions and death. They don't talk about general loser. That's the most likely outcome, is I'm not in jails, institutions, or death. I just did nothing with my life. Miserable loser. Just a loser. I don't have a family. I didn't have all these unbelievable experiences in the rave scene and in Burning Man and as a stand-up and in the deaf community and writ written two books and traveled around the world doing stand-up. I just fucking got high. That was it. That's what I did instead. I don't want to... That's really what this book is about. It's like, 
when I put down the bottle in the bag, I thought, what else can I do? And the answer was like, as much as possible. Exactly. And that's how I feel about it, too. And Moshe's got an incredible speaking engagement at the 92nd Street Y. Which, that I gotta go to. Which I'm just in awe of. I think it's so fucking cool. Maybe... Uh, when I get to LA, I could get another little bit of time with you because Absolutely. I want to hear. Because I think there's so much similarity between the way you dealt with AA and the way you dealt with Judaism. Well, let's do part two. I would love to do that. Killer. It's Thank a you. deal. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Right on. All right, we're gonna call that part one with Moshe Kosher, and we're gonna. I'm I'm journeying to California to do part two with Moshe Kosher is going to be all about other subcultures that Mr. Kosher has penetrated in his uh, journey in recovery. And I, I really enjoyed. I was in bed with him because he had a hotel room like the size of a postage stamp. And then we were talking about Bobby Altoff or whatever her name is because she did that video with Drake in bed. And I thought it would be funny if me and Moshe got in bed. And it, it was less funny. <laughs> And I had hoped, but I really enjoyed the conversation. What did you guys think of Moshe on the show? It wasn't like the knock him down, kill your parents dopey, but I thought it was really, really funny and smart. And I loved his 12-step shit. So send in an email or a voicemail to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. I love to hear your thoughts. Send in a fucked up story to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Make it under five minutes. Make it funny. Make it dopey. Make it under four if you can. Just fucking hit him with the dopey. Oh, yes. We want to start doing hit him with the dopey reels, which is you hit us with the dopey. You tell a fucked up story. It would be better if you wore dopey merch for the hit him with the dopey reels. So why don't you try that? And if you need Dopey merch, go to the Dopey Podcast store at dopeypodcast.com. If you can't afford... Dope. This is so stupid. I, I can't even believe I'm going to say this. If you can't afford dopey merch, but you want to do a hit em with the dopey reel and you have the dopey, send me the hit em with the dopey reel to me at dopeypodcast.gmail.com. I will send you something to wear, and then you'll do it again in the dopey merch. What do you think about that? Now, I don't know if you guys remember Sam Quinones. He wrote some amazing books around addiction and drug addicts. One of them was called The The Least of Us, and the, the other one, the really, really big one, was called Dreamland. He wrote a story in a newspaper that I happened upon, and I wanted to try a new segment on the show called Junkies Do Good Stuff, and this is Sam Quinones sharing some of the good stuff that junkies do. Junkies do good stuff. Welcome back to Dopey, author, journalist, of course, from Dreamland and The Least of Us. And uh, we love what you do. I love what you do. Our community loves what you do. I'm so happy that you sent me the link to your uplifting new story about drug addicts. Thanks so much, Dave. I appreciate it. Great to be here with you guys on Dopey Nation. Yes, sir. And uh, it's rare that you send a nice, uplifting story about drug addicts. And I thought we could, it's like a new kind of fun, topical, uplifting story we could talk about, which is in um, the free press, Sam wrote a story called Opioids Decimated a Kentucky Town, Recovering Addicts Are Saving It. Tell us about the town. And, and is it the same town from the Dukes of Hazard? It is not. 
It is not. Hazard, Kentucky is the town. It's in the middle of um, eastern Kentucky, uh, which is the far eastern section of, of Kentucky, um, a place that's really just very much about uh, the Appalachian, uh, connected more, I would say, to West Virginia and southern Ohio than it is to the rest of the state of Kentucky. Um, eastern Kentucky was a the center, one of the centers, you could say, along those other two areas uh, of the opioid epidemic. And I knew Hazard, Kentucky, from people telling me because who had been there or had lived there about it. And so uh, my perception of Hazard, Kentucky, was as a kind of an opioid basket case, which is devastated. Uh, the coal mines had left. The opioid pill prescribing had just inundated the area. And that's my that was my conception of it. But I had been also writing in The Least of Us about a theme that I think is very, very important and I want to continue to write about. And that is the way out of this problem being very much about small efforts, local efforts, unnoticed, non-sexy effort. And we're not looking for the big magic answer to all our problems, but simply the small localized work. So my book, The Least of Us, was it was a part about fentanyl and methamphetamine, synthetic drugs and all that kind of stuff. But more than half of it was about stories about people locally trying in some way, in the very smallest ways, to rebuild their community. And so after that book came out, uh, I was invited to come out, go out to Hazard to speak. And I said, yeah, hell yeah. I've never been there, heard of all about it. And when I got there, again, I was expecting, uh, you know, opioid devastation. And certainly that's part of the story of Hazard, Kentucky. You cannot avoid that. You should not avoid that. However, when I got there, I found a very different situation than what I was expecting. I found a community uh, in real rebound or rebirth in exactly the kinds of ways that I thought were important, very small ways. It was all about a repopulating downtown, which during the worst of, of, of things in that town had basically been abandoned. And all you had there was a courthouse and a subway sandwich, bail bondsman and a few lawyers, you know, that was it. A lot of abandoned buildings. No one really went down there uh, except for you, unless you had business in one of those places. And so I get get out there and I find that actually, no, there's all these really small businesses. This is micro capitalism at the at, at, at most perfect definition. You're talking about people with one employee, two employees, maybe. And, and little by little over the last four years, let's say, I'd say it's about four years, you see these businesses forming and other people taking encouragement from those businesses forming. But each of these businesses, it's not the big factory come to save the day. It's not a big Walmart. It's not a big shopping center. Uh, the coal mines had long gone. It was really local people forming small businesses, hiring locally, and, and just as important, being supported locally. Because there's no, in this town, there is no tourism to this town. There's no convention or conference business that brings lots of people from outside in. There's no university, there's no major freeway. So there isn't any source of outside money coming into sport. So what you find is uh, the reason these things have survived and this is doing so and really thrived 
is because local people are supporting the local businesses and allowing local businesses to expand and to hire a few more people. And those jobs begin to nourish the economy, almost entirely local, locally driven. I found it so, so exhilarating, so healthy, because what this is all about is town leaders and town officials understanding that the that what they now needed to do was to make life better for locals and that locals within the, the that population there are lots of business ideas those businesses will form and the job of, of local government now is to help those businesses survive and then and then and then thrive but through making life better for local Folks, not making life better for Walmart, so Walmart will deign to locate a store near you, right? That kind of thing, which has been pretty much the the, the way local development, uh, municipal development has gone on for quite a long time. Uh, one last thing, and, and that is that, that many people who are involved in this are recovery for, from addiction. Also, you know, you're finding this is like people coming out of d- decay, out of addiction and with energy. You know, and it's and and that is part that's a huge part of this of this story as well. To my mind, we have focused in this country on the big magic answer. It's what got us into the opioid epidemic. If you think about it, we now we're going to eradicate all human pain. How? One kind of pill for everybody. You know, that's the way the opioid painkiller. We're not going to be limiting it to just this or just that, as it had been for many years, very effectively. Now it's like anything you need, because you know what? If you're in pain, you can't be addicted to this stuff, which is complete nonsense. Uh, for some people, it's true. For other people, it's not. But whatever the case, it's definitely not um, the way they were presenting it, uh, the drug companies and the pain specialists. So I love the uh, the uplifting Sam Quinones piece. And my favorite thing also is the connection between a drug addict's ability to recover and a town's ability to recover, and that it's all the same thing. It requires work, investment, love, hope, community, connection. It's the same process. All of that, 100%. That's exactly exactly right. In fact, in fact what I think I've been focusing on lately, and I think certainly the hazard story um, is, is part of, and I would say other towns, because there are other towns in this area that are doing the same thing. It's it's not just one town. It's there's all these little small towns um, out in eastern Kentucky that are seeing in the smallest ways possible this move forward. But what is what I think all this is calling on us to understand is that recovery is more than just sitting around not doing drugs. It's about your own life, revamping your own life, finding purpose, meaning, excitement, exhilaration fulfillment in your own life through whatever means that is that takes as as an individual but also from a municipal or community level it's about recovery it's about finding new things to be excited by the way things are going wanting to be part of something bigger that's really exciting no it's amazing i mean one of the greatest things i ever heard at my meeting is we got fucked up alone but we get sober together and that's what that tells yeah. me and what's what is the thing that drives you because you're not a drug addict and yet you're an advocate for recovery. You're an advocate for this kind of hope. What makes you so passionate about our community? Well, I would say I'm not an advocate for anything. I'm a reporter. I'm a journalist. However, after writing for 12 years about all the, 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 the forms that human degradation can take, 
and the ways that we can all we we destroy ourselves. It's long been a thought of mine that that we need to we we got away from what really um, helped us uh, prosper as a country, and that is that very local connection. I've been thinking about this for a long time, and I I am a reporter, and I love stories that are great. And I think I've got a pretty finely tuned internal radar when I see a story that I think is great. It kind of lets me know that's jump on that. And that's why I did the whole, all of the stuff about the opioid epidemic, the two books, uh, first the pills and heroin and fentanyl and meth and all that stuff. But along the way, began to realize this is much more about our own destruction of community. And so to the the extent that I can find stories about the least likely places like Hazard, Kentucky, where you see recovery happening in both the people and the town itself. It's small. It's not sexy. You don't notice it unless you really know what to look for, unless you really dig down into it, because it's not obvious. It's very, very hidden, in fact, I would say in a lot of ways. But if you if you figure it out, you can see it. People tell you, and you kind of go, "Oh, oh, yes, okay, yes, I see what you mean." Then following that is what I do. I just love that kind of stuff, and I love those kinds of stories. To me, a good story can be positive, can be negative, but it's like I know it. My my internal journalistic radar tells me, man, that's a killer story. Right. Um, and this one absolutely did that to me. Randomly, I'm wearing my healing Appalachia hat, which is very weird. Because I don't usually <laughs> wear, I don't usually wear my healing Appalachia hat. Now, it makes me wonder one more thing. First of all, Hazard, yeah. this whole story reminds me of the old mustard seed parable, which is that you have this tiny seed, these tiny successes, which can totally beget massive change. And even if it's just change in people's lives and and in community and the way they interact, that change goes so further than anybody realizes. You know, it's, it might be, you know, 170 people, but then it's their families. It's the town. When you talk about the mayor in the, in the neighboring town, if he sees a dead animal on the street, he he cleans it up because he cares about the community. And and that's really like a cascade of, of love. You know, it's beautiful. Now I want to know, Sam Quinones, journalist, knows for a good story. When do you cover the dopey story at DopeyCon IV? Five people got dopey <laughs> tattoos. Five people in this place got dopey <laughs> tattoos. We've sent countless people to treatment. I think there's 40 dopey tattoos on the street. We broke 11 million downloads. I think it's time for a dopey nation story, Sam. What do you think? <laughs> um, here's the thing, man. After I finish my next book. Yes. And my next book is a little bit about this, although it's very, very off the topic, man. I wanted to write something totally not about drugs because, you know, I became a journalist not because I wanted to meet Mr. Dope. I've written about a lot of different stuff. I, the beauty of journalism is you find stuff that fascinates you and you learn all about it. And, you, and, and so, yes, I have no background in drug addiction. Nobody in my family that I know of has been addicted to, to a drug. It's just I, I'm fascinated by, by stories that I think are really, really important. And, uh, you know, with the, the opioid thing, it became nationwide. But now I am in the middle of writing a book, believe it or not, about the tuba. Okay. What about the tuba? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. What I wanted to write was a, about people who are doing something 
for the pure love of it, for the pure fulfillment their own creation creates within them because they are, and the, the, the tuba, you don't play the tuba because you want to be famous or wealthy. You play the tuba because you are fascinated and excited by what you can create yourself, not by buying a product outside and consuming it, but what you could create yourself and, and the feeling that that gives you of exhilaration and the people who stick with the tuba and play it semi-professionally or professionally frequently can tell you about these remarkable moments. So I wanted to write about the opposite of addiction. Addiction being self-destruction, uh, lack of, you know, no kind of discipline, no preparation, just simply a pursuit of something outside of you to make you happy. The tuba, I wanted to write about something that's kind of the opposite of that. And the tuba is is, is that. It's a, it's a weird topic, I know. Tuba players tend to be kind of very different from other musicians because they're not motivated by money. They're not motivated. They're never going to headline a Super Bowl show, right? That's a good point. Um, First of all, you sidestepped my dopey question, but we'll, we'll avoid that. Secondly, yeah. in your tuba story, are you covering the incredible phenomenon of tuba as bass in New Orleans and dub music? New Orleans, I hope to make part of it, but it's not about... It's a it's about tuba as a place as a place for people to find fulfillment. What I what I believe has happened in the country is that too often we as Americans and it's reflected in the opioid epidemic, right? The 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 too often as Americans we we look for fulfillment, quote unquote, or happiness. Usually, what they, what we mean is pleasure sure. from stuff that's outside of us, and. I wanted to write about people who were finding fulfillment through their own hard work, preparation, postponing gratification, all of these things. And it's it, to me, so I'm going down to New Orleans in about a month, and I hope to include some of that. But if I don't find stuff that fits in with this topic, then no, because the topic is not about the tuba. It's about people who play the tuba looking for their own enrichment that they create themselves. People come up to me a lot and say, how can I prevent my kid from being uh, addicted to drugs? And I, I don't really have a good you know, answer for that always. I think that what I've written on the book so far, this is the, the tentative ending. It's all tentative when you're writing at this stage. It's all can be rewritten and all. But it's tentative to say that now my answer to that question may be, Search for ways for your kid to find his or her own tuba. That is what makes them enriched internally through their own effort, through their own very hard work, through their own preparation, all of that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. I think what we're saying, what you're saying is happiness is an inside job. And the kingdom of heaven lies within, as George Clinton once said, and I'm sure somebody else said that as well. Yeah. Um, and where Johan Hari <laughs> says uh, connection is the opposite of addiction, Sam Quinones might right. say the tuba is the opposite of addiction, which will be a much I more have fun. I've already said that. That's a much more I have fun. I've already quote. said that in what I've written, dude. Absolutely, exactly. And that's that's kind of the idea. This is kind of an idea. It's got a long genesis. It didn't start out this way, but as I got into it, I began to realize. Wow, man, this is so profound. 
creating something that they know will net will the most the tuba can offer you is an unnoticed middle class life. That's it. Hmm. There's another piece too, though. You don't find many tuba soloists. The tuba is the bottom of an ensemble. The tuba is the quintessential team player. The tuba makes the other stuff shine. I'm with you. Listen. Right. And you cannot have a good band. A marching band cannot work without without the tuba, for for example, you know. Um, and so at the same time, there's all these people in the tuba world who, who are breaking away from the old relegated marginalized view of the tuba which is tubby the tuba guy fat guy at the back of the band playing boom 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 like yeah kind of thing there are some amazing virtuosos in the in the tuba world now but i guess my, my what i really want to to talk about what really moves me in all this is again that whole idea of finding that purpose but the purpose in life that requires work the idea that you just kind of stumble on your purpose in life and that that's all you want to do. I don't buy that. I buy, I think that it takes a lot of work to get to a point where you think this is the most enriching, fulfilling thing I've ever done. And I don't want to do it. And we each have that it's different for every single human being, but I find that people who are in addiction in order to fully recover, they need to find that for themselves. And it's something other than, than, than drugs. Well, it's like Kobe Bryant. Like Kobe Bryant was one of the most talented basketball players ever, but he was the hardest worker. You might stumble upon the thing that you love, but once you find the love, it's all it is, is work. It's, it's more work. And, and the only, the, the height of your success is only based on the work you're willing to put in even for the greatest, you know, the greatest tuba players, Jerry Garcia played guitar right. all fucking day. He would play a gig at night. He would practice for 12 hours a day. And they all did. All the greats did. Nobody didn't. All the great work comes from focus and, and commitment to actually the process. A hundred percent. And I think what, what differentiates is, is when you come to love the work, you have to love the work. And that may take some time to develop as well. I know in my own life, I could tell you, uh, journalism, I've been doing this 37 years now. I have never wanted to do anything else even though early on i was not a good writer I, I got better as i got as i wrote more and more and more and more that's natural that's absolutely what needs what you what happens but i i just like don't begrudge the tuba i mean i'm sorry the, the journalism <laughs> um, you know there's this there's this beautiful story one of these stories and i i can't tell you too much about where this kid is but this one kid was the best tuba player in his region and he was chubby, big glasses, stuttered, but a lot of jokes, bullied horribly and had been um, molested as a child. Mm. He took to the tuba as the soothing, as this thing that could help soothe him. It was almost, in fact, a little bit like a like a drug, except for it was all based on his ability to play it and have it soothe the pain. And the, what made him so good, though, was that he never went kicking and screaming to the tuba. The tuba, he embraced it, and it began to have this healthy effect on him in the face of all this disaster in his in his in his life and the brutality of his school experience. Um, and no other way to describe it. Um, it. The tuba was his friend. It was his confidant. It was his suit. And I think 
that's a that's a rare story. But I think frequently with uh, with occupations that we come to view as just truly fulfilling, we find that we can do that. Meaning we don't begrudge the work. We don't say, I and to, I don't want to do it today, you know, kind of thing. No, we do it be and in time because you tr truly gr grow to love it. And that's that's exactly how I felt about journalism for most of my 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 career, even though writing a, a rough draft of a book is absolute torment. It's so, so hard. And I'm in the middle of that right now. But it's a little by little by little. I'm getting there. And and I just I love the process of exploration. I love the the fact that that I'm doing this and I'm not in an office somewhere and I get to talk with interesting people all day long. All of that kind of stuff kind of keeps me 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 going. So no, this I, is I a book you. about something I thought was totally different from addiction. And as I wrote about it, I began to realize actually it's con completely connected to the topic uh, in a way I was not expecting. So it's so it's it. so fun. I'm so glad we took a little tube. What's the name of the book going to be? <laughs> Good question. Something like the perfect tuba. <laughs> I'm not sure. The perfect tuba. Something. 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 The perfect tuba. And when you talk about that kid, bingo. When you talk about that kid, it makes me think about the vibrations that a tuba makes, and that you're inside it. Yes. And you're pumping out this in these tones. I imagine it. It's incredibly satisfying and healing. There's just the just the warmth of the sound, and that you're inside that sound and inside that vibration. I bet, I bet. I mean, that could be a whole a whole new form of meditation or recovery stuff. It's that's cool. I like it. So that kid, that was exactly what the way he he described it. It was like these vibrations. What he was creating was coming through this essentially a microphone think about the tuba you you buzz into it and this ugly sound and it comes out the other end and it fills a room and it shakes the chairs and it's change shakes something almost molecular in our bodies you know and that's what it kind of it it did it did for him and he he embraced it like like just like a warm friend and he didn't have any friends i love it junkies do good stuff all right. Thank you, Sam Quinones. If you know any junkies doing good stuff, send in an email and a voicemail. I know some junkies who are doing good stuff, and that's you guys in the Dopey Nation. So thank you for being out there, being you, doing good stuff. Thank you to all the admins in Dopey Nation, in the Dopey Podcast Group. Thank you to Ben Croxton for fucking Herculeanly growing the dopey podcast group and page with Chrissy and Dominic and Aviza and Lizanne and all the rest. Paulina. I hope I see Paulina when I'm in California. Fucking Andrew. Whatever happened to Andrew. Hope he's well. Catherine. Leah Lemberg. Fucking incredible business coach. Big shout outs across the board. Cormac. Hope you're well. Nat Kingsley, of course kicking butt fucking Britta always there Amelia she only listens to the interview doesn't listen to the show but every interview has Amelia's fingerprints on it big shout out to Amelia I don't know thank you to everybody who's listening to the show 
Look for my dad coming soon. I think Fentanyl J is in Mardi Gras. If he makes it back alive, I'm going to just ambush him at his restaurant. So he will be back on the show soon. My dad will be back on the show soon. Show soon. Crazy big shout out and thank you to Margaret Cho and potential future dopey guest Bobby Lee. Thank you, Moshe Kosher, for bringing it this week. Thank you, everybody. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. Good. 
so bad, so bad. I want to be good so bad. Bad desires all I ever had. Damn it, all these suckers make me mad. And it's all I ever had. And it's all I ever had. And these suckers make me mad. And I want to call my dad. And it's all I ever had. 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 These suckers make me mad, and it's all I ever had, and I want to call my dad, and it's all I ever had, and it's all I ever had, and it's all I ever had.